everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So this story is from a friend of mine, but I have his permission to post it here. He's told it on multiple occasions, and I swear to God it's one of the scariest stories I've ever heard in my life. It doesn't involve Bigfoot or ghosts or anything like that. It's a story of how reality can be way, way scarier than anything like that. For the longest time, he worked as a trail ranger at a large national park. A trail ranger is basically a ranger, only with considerably less judicial power. He can't arrest you or anything, but if you're in an illegal blind or hunting stand, he had the power to call in actual cops before ripping down whatever unlicensed hide you've constructed. So this one time, he's accompanying an actual forest ranger and taking down unauthorized hunting cameras and feeders. The actual ranger was an older guy who started to feel unwell towards the early afternoon, so he headed back on his own. It was like an hour's ride on an ATV and left my buddy to finish up. Just as he was almost done, my friend starts to hear voices coming through the trees. It's important to keep in mind that he was way, way off the beaten path at this point, so it's not like he expected there to be anyone around. But it occurs to him that these might be the people putting up the illegal cameras and blinds in the first place. He calls out to them, demanding to know who they are, but the voices just go quiet, and there's not a sound to be heard other than the occasional bird song. It's also starting to get dark by that time, so he starts heading back towards the trail where his ATV is parked. When he finds it and tries to start it up, it won't budge. That's when he noticed that the ATV battery has been torn out and taken by someone. Not some prank by the older ranger. Someone has actually disabled his means of escape. The way he tells it, this obviously made him extremely nervous, especially since he'd already heard voices in the area. He radios back into the ranger station he's based at, basically telling them that they needed someone to come pick him up. They reply they'll have someone out to him within an hour, but when he asks about the older ranger, they tell him he hasn't arrived back yet. Again, this made him really nervous since the ranger should have easily arrived back by that point. He settled down and started a small fire as the sun went down, but before long he heard those same voices again. They're not happy at all. He said it sounded like they were in the middle of a vicious argument, with one guy angry and yelling while the other sounded frightened and apologetic. He listens for a minute or two before calling out into the darkness, asking if anyone needed help. The way he tells it, they must have heard him. You could hear them, so they must have heard them in return, but they didn't react, like they were too absorbed with their disagreement to answer him. My friend then radios back into the ranger's station for a progress report. They replied saying they were having a little trouble finding the trail he was on, but that they wouldn't be much longer. 
The older ranger, however, still hadn't arrived back at the station. About five or ten more minutes go by when my trail ranger friend begins to hear the same angry voices start up again. He decides to walk towards them, hoping maybe he can prevent a potential assault and maybe even get his hands on some food and water. He walked in their direction, but the voices seemed to be getting further away, no matter how much he tried to close in on them. Finally, after like 20 minutes of walking, he gave up and hiked back to his fire. It's about then that he got a radio call and they said the older ranger guy has been found passed out, covered in vomit, having fallen from his ATV. He was being taken to the hospital and that had taken priority over finding my friend. I mean, that's understandable, but my friend is getting kind of frustrated at this point. He's out in the woods, on his own, and it's getting real chilly out. Then the voices came back. He's pretty bored at this point and he's convinced these guys don't want any company. So he said he just sat there in the darkness listening to them argue over something. He's picking up little phrases here and there when the voices begin to shout. Things like, well it wasn't yours to take. Or, I don't care, it's mine. Stuff like that. He says he assumed it was two hunters maybe arguing over a kill but there was a good chance they were blaming each other for the missing equipment that my friend and the ranger had confiscated. He heard the argument get louder as one of the hunters shouted something unintelligible. Then, out of nowhere, bang. A single gunshot echoes through the woods. He immediately doused his fire, ran a couple hundred meters into the trees, then hid in the thicket. He said he waited there for as long as he could stand it, hearing absolutely nothing but his own heavy breathing until he saw the lights of an ATV. He told the guy picking him up everything that had happened and they called into the ranger station. They had people looking for three hours out there, but not a single thing was found by any of the rangers. They came back the next day with state police and tracker dogs. It only took about an hour before a shallow grave was found. In it was a long, dead corpse of a man who had clearly been shot in the forehead. Thing was, it was a skeleton that had been there for years and years. So either the argument he heard just ended with a bang and both parties went home last night, or he heard the murder of someone from years ago. I don't really believe the last part, and to be honest, neither does he. But it certainly makes for a creepy ending to the story. But the really scary part for me is that there's every chance that the gunshot he heard that night was yet another murder, and that the body will be found in a similar way by some unwary ranger, like some horrible time loop that'll never end. I've been a hunter for more than 20 years. My dad taught me, just like my grandpa taught him. Same as I taught my own son in turn. I faced down grizzly bears, packs of hungry coyotes, even guys I suspected to be cartel tending to illegal grow sites. But they're things a man can deal with. A can of bear mace, a warning shot. Only once have I come across something I didn't know how to deal with. Only once have I ever truly been frightened. When I hunt, I take dogs. They're a pair of big old Airedale terriers, good hunting hounds and even better company. Just from the way they're acting, I can tell if there's a bear in the area, 
or if we're still on the trail of that whitetail we've been tracking. Unfortunately, on the day in question, they couldn't pick up anything. I mean, that's not unusual at first. It normally takes an hour or two to really get a sense of what's been moving through the area, to kind of tune into the forest. But we've walked for hours and hours and didn't find so much as a squirrel. The woods were eerily quiet that day, so reluctantly, I doubled back to a creek we passed and sat down to fish. The fish, however, were not so shy, and I managed to get one on the hook in record time. One of the joys of hunting smaller game is actually being able to eat whatever you killed right there and then, and nothing tastes as good as fresh fried fish. So I tie my fishing line off on a tree, letting my dinner hang there in the evening sun while I get to work building a small cooking fire right there next to the lake. It took a little longer than I've had liked thanks to recent summer rains, but soon I'd had the tinder crackling with smoke and flame. Then it was just a case of gutting that fish and tossing it in the pan with some Crisco. Gutting a fish is easy, but it sure ain't glamorous. Sometimes you pull out a parasite or two that's attached itself to the gills or guts. Just one or two normally, but this thing had a mess of them in its belly. Its shimmering insides were black with writhing worms. It was sick, real sick. I tossed it on the fire and washed my hands off in the creek. I'd never seen anything like that in all my years. But I wasn't scared, disgusted sure, but not scared. Not yet anyway. I kicked some dirt on the fire, whistled the dogs, and began to walk back to the car. I decided that I'd make a point of stopping by the park ranger's station to tell them about those parasites I'd seen inside the fish. Only, I never made it to the ranger's station. My dogs are real good boys. They know not to make a lot of noise out in the woods, lest they scare the game away. Most I've ever seen them make noise is a kind of muted yapping whenever there's a grizzly in the area. So when we're about halfway back to my truck, one of them lets out this string of loud, angry barks. My first thought is that it's another person out here with another dog. Trigger is a friendly boy, but he barks up a storm whenever he sees or smells another hound. I tell it to hustle up, but he just keeps on barking for a moment or two before he did the weirdest thing. He slinks back towards me, tail between his legs, whining and yapping like I hadn't seen him since he was a puppy. I reached down to pet him and he was shaking like a leaf. Then, out of nowhere, he just peed right there on the ground. He didn't cock his leg like he normally does against a tree. The poor guy just let loose, almost like he didn't mean to. That's what got me thinking. What is it that had Trigger so scared? Whatever it was, it was close enough for him to catch the thing's scent, big enough to make him freak out like that. I had no intention of hanging around to find out what it was. I started walking back in the direction of my truck a little faster than before. The dogs were bounding back and forth, barking into the woods behind us and yelping at me as if to say, hurry up, old man. I kept wheeling around with my rifle pressed into my shoulder, ready to fire at some mama grizzly who decided I was too much of a risk to her babies. But nothing came. I didn't even hear twigs snapping, no tree branches swaying. Whatever was coming at us was moving totally silently. That was around the time I began to smell this real strong scent in the air. Kind of like cat pee or something, only it has this awful rotten tinge to it. I don't think I'd run like that since high school. 
I was exhausted when I finally got back to my truck, dripping sweat from hauling my nearly 50-year-old self across half a mile of woodland. The dogs actually tried to scramble over to me to get into the cab once I'd unlocked the door, and I may or may not have been speeding down that dirt road before I even closed the door. I couldn't take my mind off of the whole drive home, and the more I thought about it, the more it was obvious that something was terribly wrong with the woods around that area. Even in the middle of winter, when most of the birds and animals move south for warmer pastures, the woods are alive with the sounds of nature. Hammering woodpeckers, the occasional high-pitched squeal of an elk, the screeching of birds of prey from above, they're never, ever quiet. But that day, the woods were completely silent. It reminded me of a documentary I'd seen on natural disasters. Before an earthquake or tsunami, all of the animals in an affected area seemed to sense the oncoming danger and flee. This has been reported time and time again by the survivors of such events. Whatever was out there, the animals had sensed it just like my dogs had and it had scared them like the devil. I have no trouble admitting that I was terrified. Like I said, I've been a hunter for more than 20 years and nothing has ever so much as made me jump. But something wasn't right about the woods that day. Something that still makes my skin crawl to think about, even to this day. I told a few old buddies of mine one time, but they just laughed and called it a campfire story. Some days I really, really wish it was. Let me make something clear. I'm not telling any of you my name, nor am I telling you where or when this all took place. Why? Because I still might go to prison for this. Whatever happened never made the papers. No cops ever appeared at my front door looking to ask questions. Not yet, anyway. Part of me thinks that day might never come, but just in case, I need to confess so I can at least go on with my life with a semblance of normalcy. I honestly don't care if people believe this or not. If people call it out as fake, well, maybe I really will get away with this. I've never been particularly active. I'm an indoor sort of guy. Less trails and rivers, more Netflix and dominoes. But my wife's family, on the other hand, are total opposites. When I married into the family, my size and athleticism became the butt of most of their jokes. It wore on me for a while until my wife made a suggestion go hunting with her brother, earn a little respect, then maybe I'd find Thanksgiving at their place a little less unbearable. So, I agreed. The two-hour drive out into the woods with my brother-in-law was awkward to say the least. He's one of those guys who's unable to hold down any kind of conversation that strays from the NFL and light beer. However, he did seem to perk up once I'd mentioned that I'd never fired a gun before. Through Wee's laughter, he told me how it would be fun seeing the city boy try to handle the recoil of a 30-odd six, or whatever that meant. But, I admit, I was kind of excited about the prospect of firing one for the first time. After all, I put enough time into Call of Duty, I thought. He parked the truck, then pulled out two big rifle slips from the rear storage. Inside were two rifles, big old things made of wood and iron. They were way heavier than I had expected. He wasn't wrong about how amusing he'd find it watching me fire one either. 
The recoil made me jump out of my skin, and the sights nearly hit me right in the eye thanks to looking into them a little too close. But to be honest, I didn't care how funny my brother-in-law thought it was. I found the whole experience exhilarating. I missed my shot on the tree stump he told me to aim at, but when I insisted on trying again and again until I hit the thing, he seemed to react exactly how my wife had assumed he would. He respected that I didn't just give up. Soon, the conversation flowed a little more freely, with considerably less jibs about me being a liberal city boy, as he so deftly put it. I don't know why I doubted her. My wife was right. He was her brother after all. Once he thinks I'm ready, we start walking further out into the woods to look for deer. He goes through the fundamentals of deer stalking with me, how to tread lightly and to stay downwind from your potential quarry. I honestly didn't think we'd see anything. My brother-in-law told me himself that sometimes luck just wasn't on your side, especially for newer hunters like myself. But we were wrong. We did see something. Through a dense patch of bushes, I saw something poking over the top, something symmetrical and pointed. I silently got my brother-in-law's attention, pointing towards what I'd seen, what was clearly a set of deer antlers. I expected him to rush into action and shoot the thing through the bush, but he just pointed at me, frantically indicating that it should be me to take the shot. So I did, just like he'd shown me. I rested the butt of the rifle into my shoulders, aligning the front and rear sights in my vision, then slowly and gently squeezed the trigger. The antlers disappeared, and on the other side of the bush, something hit the dirt with a thud. I'd done it. My first kill. I could see in his eyes how impressed he was, how rare it was for a first-time hunter to bag a buck on his first shot, let alone his first hunt. We rushed through the brush to check out the kill, but we couldn't never have been ready for what we were about to see. Blood and brain were strewed across the dirt and fallen leaves in front of us, looking almost bright among the dull color of the forest floor. And there were antlers all right, but they weren't attached to a deer. It was a woman, completely naked, lying in the dirt before us. Her body was an ashen gray, like it had been painted with mud or something. The antlers were part of some kind of headdress that lay next to her still warm body. My first reaction was to pull out my phone. I didn't think, I just acted. I wasn't thinking about the consequences. I was halfway to calling the EMTs when my brother-in-law slapped the phone out of my hand. I'm not going to prison because of some dumb hippie, he hissed. But she didn't look like any hippie I'd ever seen. The headdress she'd been wearing had no flowers in it. It wasn't at all pretty. It was a mess of dead roots and vines with what looked like teeth and rat's tails stitched into it. Aside from that weird body paint she had on that made her look like a corpse, her fingernails were long, yellowing, and sharp. After that is kind of a blur. I remember running back to the truck, being so out of shape that I stopped to puke against a tree, then more running. My head was spinning by the time we got back to the truck. We said nothing to each other on the drive back. We didn't need to. It was either keep our mouths shut, or it would be the end of our lives as we knew it. When we got back, my brother-in-law explained that I'd shot my first deer, 
but had freaked out and ran when I saw the body. Couldn't handle being a killer, he said. I nodded, playing along that I was too much of a baby to be a hunter, and they all believed it. It played right into their stereotype of me and no one ever questioned a thing. No one thought it was suspicious that we came back earlier, or without the deer we'd killed to bush it for meat. My brother-in-law and I barely talk now. We see each other on the odd holiday, but the conversation never advanced past small talk. Each of us just tries not to think about it. But I do. I can't help it. I wonder which one of us is going to break first. Him or me. Sometimes I worry he thinks I'm going to snap and tell my wife that he'll invite me into the woods for one last hunting trip. And I'll never be seen again. I'm a hunter up here in Minnesota, in a town not far north of Millax Lake. I have a handful of stories detailing freaky incidences that have taken place on hunts. Here's the first. One season in particular, I was fairly deep in the woods on the snowmobile trail. When I hunt, I typically carry my 30 6 knife, and pack. I feel fairly confident in the woods, but this season I had some concern. The deer population seemed lower on our property recently, and we knew there were wolves around because you find their tracks, not to mention being able to hear them howl at night. But luckily, they typically don't mess with people. But as I was scanning for deer tracks in the dirt, I found a different set of tracks that stood out to me. They looked canine, minus the nail marks, and was a bit wider. The paw on it looked like a 150-pound animal. Then it clicked that it was a feline track. A big one, and fairly fresh. I knew there were bobcats around, but they don't get that big, so the next logical step is to assume that there was a cougar in the area. I decided to double back. So I'm heading back east on the trail when my dad calls and asks me to do a push through the woods towards his stand, so I say sure. At this point, his stand is maybe 500 meters through thick woods from me, and I'm concerned about the large predator nearby but I also know that I'm 6'4 and about 190 pounds before putting on my gear. Statistically speaking, cougars don't tend to attack healthy adult men. So I push forward. I get about halfway to the other stand when I get concerned because I lost my marker. I stop to regain my bearings, and then it hits me. Something in my gut tells me, you're being watched. Then I notice how still the woods are, deathly quiet. Then I hear a branch snap behind me, maybe 20 meters. I steady my rifle and scan in a circle, but only see trees and brush. I wait, and it's just way too quiet, so I push forward towards my dad's stand. The whole time, I'm hearing something not far behind me that's quietly keeping pace. Eventually, I stopped hearing it, and the woods went back to normal with the birds singing and whatnot. Then I stepped out onto a trail about 40 meters from my dad's stand. I suspected it was the cougar that made the tracks. My guess is that it thought I would put up too much of a fight or it caught my dad's scent and chose to back off. I never did see it, but something definitely was following me. Second story. This happened about two years ago now. I decided to take my fiancé hiking after one evening in a park with some nice bluffs to climb for a great view. If I'm honest, 
I was hoping to see a nice sunset and earn some boyfriend points so I could drink with my buddies on the weekend without complaint. You should know that this isn't a particularly safe thing to do at this time of night, so I gave her my tactical knife and I carried a 40 caliber pistol. We arrive and park the car before heading up a trail, and then about a hundred meters in, we spook what I assume was a deer, which halted away from us so quickly that I only saw a flash of tan. Honestly, it scared us pretty good too, so now I'm on edge and we round a crest in a hill and I see a black mass to my left in my peripheral vision. I unsnap the retention of my holster and turn to engage what turned out to be nothing but a mound of black dirt. So I calm down and we continue on with our nice little evening hike with birds chirping, bugs making noise, regular forest stuff. Now for the creepy part. Once we were within 20 meters of the halfway point on the trail, it starts to feel real eerie, almost like we're being watched. This time it clicked right away. The woods are now dead, but I start noticing movement keeping pace with us, so I keep us moving towards the top of the hill, the high ground which is the halfway point on the trail. We reach it and stop, so does whatever was following us but the woods are still dead calm and my fiancé tells me she thinks we are being followed, so we decide to move on and take a shortcut back down the bluff to the paved trail. We make it and the woods get back to normal sounds again. We considered hiking more, but were a bit too spooked and left the park. Now whatever was following us I suspect was another cougar. It was quiet and we didn't see it. And the strangest part is that the stalking noises it did make sounded elevated like it was moving from tree to tree, and big cats have been known to do this. Story 3. Perhaps the least explainable of them all. This one happened around June or July of 2007, I believe. I was around 17 years old and much more cocky then, but still somewhat knowledgeable of the outdoors. My family used to own a cabin in northwest Wisconsin, I basically grew up there in the summer and knew the woods well, but at night it was wise to stay in the cabin or at least by the bonfire by the beach because of bears, wolves, and cougars. One of the creepiest things was if you were having a bonfire, the tree line was visible from the fire pits and beach, and at night you always felt like you were being watched from that tree line. But during the day, the woods always seemed normal, not so creepy. That is until this incident. This happened in broad daylight sometime around noon. Me and my cousin were having an airsoft battle. I was in full woodland camo. He was not. I retreated onto the ATV trail into the woods for a tactical advantage and our battle took us about 200 meters up the trail. We had enough at this point and were standing at the edge of a clearing on the trail talking and he was maybe 10 feet from me. When I decided to mess with him, I shushed him and said, We're being watched. He froze. Then I realized the woods were dead quiet, and I got spooked and started scanning the tree line in the other edge of the clearing from left to right when I saw it. Its teeth gave it away. It was panting and staring at my cousin. I don't expect you to believe me, but what I saw was a wolf as big as a black bear, at least 300 pounds. But it wasn't normal. This wolf was on two legs crouching next to a tree with its arms grasping the tree, grasping with a clawed hand. It had reddish-brown fur. 
the next thing I know were both of us sprinting back towards our cabin. I look back at the wolf, or bear thing, which was now in the process of full-on charging us, barreling through the brush. But for whatever reason, it stopped following us as we broke out of the tree line. What struck with me the most was the sheer size. The wolf thing had to be nearly seven feet tall when upright, and that where it should have had front paws, it appeared to have large, clawed hands. No, I'm not sure how to explain it away rationally. I have heard wolves will occasionally kind of walk upright, but as far as I know, they can't sprint on two legs, nor do wolves get that big, and black bears more waddle on their hind legs. I still have no idea to this day exactly what that thing was. I lived in the San Jose Silicon Valley area for most of my life and have been an avid hunter ever since my dad and uncle took me along on a trip when I was a kid. Some of the woodlands out there are some of the last great wilderness areas on the west coast, the kind of places where radio or even cell towers won't reach, the kind of place that, when you're there, you truly are disconnected from the modern world. So one day I'm out with my buddy in our usual hunting spot, which happens to be near a creek. Now this creek is home to steelhead trout, black trail deer, all kinds of red and yellow-like frogs, all of which are species rapidly approaching the endangered list. But when I happen upon the creek, I find the thing is bone dry, not even so much of a trickle of water flowing through it. All the steelhead trout are dead, lying there rotting in the sweltering afternoon sun. I start to notice all this plastic and piping at the bottom of the creek where it feeds out. So I think, okay, it's probably just a rancher who needs the water for cattle or something. But regardless, diverting natural water sources like this is terrible for the land, as you probably guessed from the mention of all those rare trout just lying there, dead. I started following the plastic piping about a hundred meters through the trees until I began to see this little canyon. In it, being fed by the water pipes leaching from the creek nearby, were hundreds of marijuana plants. They're short because it's early in the season, maybe only about two or three feet tall, so I can easily see these two human figures crouched among the plants while tending to them. Now I've run across these kinds of operations before. They're usually planted by old hippies or small-time gangbangers, but these guys had rifles slung across their backs, pistols in little hip or leg holsters. They even had these big old knives. They looked like they could be special force guys or something, seriously not the usual people I run into at these things. The other thing I notice is the environmental damage these guys are doing. Most wilderness growth sites at least try to tidy up after themselves, especially the hippie types who generally leave nothing but their boot prints. But these guys left camp trash strewn everywhere, empty plastic bags of fertilizer, empty propane tanks, all kinds of garbage. They're unaware that I'm watching them at this point. They're still just working their plants, cruising through the growth site towards where I'm stood. That was like that oh no moment, where I realized if anything went down here, we'd have no help, no backup. I had my old bolt action and a buck knife, but these guys had AR-15s. There's no way I'd last a minute in a straight-up gunfight with them. So we just watch for a few minutes, 
using our deer-stalking skills to remain unseen, or so we thought. Crack. There were panicked screams in Spanish from the canyon below. One second we're crouched among the bushes, the next my buddy is lying flat on his back. At first I had no idea what had happened. I thought he might have slipped and fallen, but then I saw the blood. He'd been shot by an ambusher who had been watching us just as we'd been watching them. The bullet passed through both of his thighs, completely taking his leg out from under him, causing him to pump blood out onto the forest floor. It was horrible. I had no idea if those guys down there, who I assumed were hardened Mexican cartel at this point, were on their way up to finish us off. I racked around into my hunting rifle and fired it in their general direction, then did the same with my buddy's rifle, hoping it might deter them for a moment or two. I had no first aid on me at all. I had one back in the truck, but that was miles away. We had to think fast. My buddy was already screaming at me to cut his shirt off to make a pair of improvised tourniquets. I did so, terrified that it wouldn't be enough to stem the horrendous amounts of blood squirting out of not one, but four bullet wounds. We managed to stem the bleeding a little, but I needed to get my buddy help but there's no doubt he'd have bled to death right there on the forest floor. But as I mentioned before, we're in a wilderness area with very little in the way of radio or cell reception, so I couldn't reply on my phone to bring in the EMTs. As I ran off back in the direction of my truck, I wondered if I'd end up running into cartel growers again. It was one of the worst feelings of my life. Go slow and safely and my friend might die. Move fast and loud those cartel guys might have gotten the drop on me. Considering it was one of the worst days of my life, we were remarkably lucky as it progressed. Firstly, as I'm running, sweating and panning like a beast through endless forest, I heard some kind of high-pitched whooping sound. Only this wasn't any kind of animal I'd ever heard before. It was human. Sure enough, I walked straight out onto this mountain biking trail with these kids going down it so fast that they just whizzed right past me without stopping. But with breathless cries and waving arms, I did manage to catch their attention. One of them said their parents were nearby and they'd go get help, which I told the others the direction of the creek in which to send the EMTs when they arrived. Secondly, one of the worst places to get shot or stabbed is in the mid to upper thigh, which is exactly where my buddy took the bullet. The reason being is the femoral artery. It's one of the biggest blood vessels in the body. Nick that, and you're dead in minutes. That's what I feared the most, that the tourniquets had failed, that my buddy had died of blood loss mere minutes after I had left to get help. Thank God that wasn't the case. Doctors later said that the bullet had traveled through both legs without hitting anything major, which makes him one lucky SOB if you ask me. I heard a group of DEA agents join the park rangers in eradicating the marijuana patch, torched it all in one go in a controlled burn, but all those chemicals done a number on the soil where the grow site was, and that's the real crime if you ask me. I still hunt, so does my buddy although it took him a little longer than me to get back to it. I suppose that's the allure of the forest. You never know what you're going to find on a hunt. And you never know when the biggest danger isn't some black bear who doesn't like you too close to her cubs. It's your fellow man. 
One particularly snowy February a few years back, I was out shooting birds in my beloved state of Michigan. I had my old German Shepherd dog with me, Jazz, who has to be the best bird dog this side of the Great Lakes. I took Jazz out for a hunt at Harrisville State Park just a few hours north of Detroit. He was on one of those extendable leashes at first, just in case he got too excited and took off through the forest. But I bought a cheap online and it wasn't a very good one. Rather than a long strap leash, this was more of a cord or thick string. Good for a smaller dog, not so good for a German Shepherd. So, we're getting pretty deep into the woods when we come across paw prints in the snow. I'm no tracker, but they look pretty canine, so I figured it was a dog or something, but the way Jazz was barking made me think it might have been a fox. Foolishly, I was encouraging her to find the evil fox, hyping her up with my tone of voice. It was dumb, because the next thing I know, she's pulling on the leash really hard, and I can feel the cheap plastic beginning to bend in my grip. Then, the cord just snaps and obviously Jazz does what dogs do and just follows her nose through the trees, completely ignoring my cries for her to stop. Although she wasn't exactly hard to follow, she made huge, bounding tracks in the snow. I was obviously extremely anxious that she'd get lost. I wouldn't just be heartbroken. My parents would literally murder me if I lost our dog. There wasn't any undergrowth, so I could see him darting around the woods about 60 or so feet in front of me smelling things while ignoring me. I'm following him, trying to get his attention. There were coyotes in the area, and I didn't want him finding a den and sticking his head in. He eventually darted down a side path, an unmarked, unofficial trail that ran along the creek. I knew it fairly well, and had been on it in the summer, but this was winter, so it might as well have been another country. The creek cut through some hills, and the path was pretty much along the hilltops the creek had cut, but... Still, I followed the dog along the narrow, slippery pathways. That's when I hit a patch of ice. I really should have seen it coming. It was dumb of me to just go running off like that in such hazardous conditions. But you must know how it feels, thinking you're going to lose a pet. I think I'd run through fire just to catch up with that old hound. I slipped, falling in the frozen dirt so hard it knocked the wind out of me. I'm not talking about just from the impact. I really did land right on my sternum. I had to roll over. I was desperate to draw a breath, but that's what sent me rolling down that steep hill towards the creek bed. I rolled over onto my belly and tried to grab for a root to stop myself from sliding. Only when I grabbed it, I had half a second to realize it wasn't a root. It was nothing but a loose twig. So I fell all the way down the hill, slamming into rocks and tree stumps the whole way down. I'm yelping and cursing, but I got a flash of the frozen water in my eyes and began to panic. Really panic. If I was injured and I ended up in that freezing cold water, I was a dead man. The creek was frozen over, but I hit with enough force to break the ice. Thankfully, the water wasn't deep at all in that section I landed. When I tried to stand at first, my knees buckled and I went to my hands and knees. At first I thought my fears were confirmed that I'd broken an ankle or something, but I hadn't. I was just banged up from the fall. Pretty much everything but my shoulders and head were submerged in freezing cold water. I remember screaming in frustration as I scrambled to my feet and stumbled to a place I could get back up out of the water. 
Jazz at least came down to see what I was screaming about. When she got close enough for me to grab her, I tied the length of cord from her side of the broken leash to my wrist. She wasn't getting away again. I'd see to that. It was around this time I noticed my pant leg had been ripped open when I fell into the creek, and so had my knee. I don't know whether it was a sharp rock or something else I landed on. Still, I was bleeding pretty good, and soon it started to throb. That's when I started to walk back to my car. It couldn't have been more than two or three miles, but I was completely wet with ice-cold water in February, bleeding and walking with a pretty bad limp. Like I said, I'm no expert tracker or anything, but I was terrified that a bear or something would smell my blood and chase me down before I got a chance to get to safety. Worst case scenario was, of course, playing in my head the whole way back to the car. But I got there, peeled out of my wet outer layer, but I didn't have anything dry to change into. I did at least have a first aid kit handy to bandage my leg. I had the heater on full blast. I put my unfired 22 in the back seat. There was no way I'd be shooting it while it was soaked through. Best to just head home and see to getting my leg checked out by a nurse. But before I moved, I sat there for a while in the car, shaking from the cold and the realization that it could have gone a whole lot worse. During the Vietnam War, the CIA's Special Activities Division began to recruit, train, and lead the indigenous Hmong people in Laos to fight against North Vietnamese Army. This secret army was organized into various mobile regiments and divisions including various special guerrilla units, all of whom were commanded by the United States military. Though their role was generally kept secret in the early stages of the conflict, they made great sacrifices to help the U.S. and were instrumental in the rescue of downed pilots. It's said that more than half of all the fighting-age Hmong men in Laos signed up to fight. After the war, thousands of economic and political refugees resettled in Western countries. The Lao Veterans of America and Lao Veterans of America Institute helped to assist in the resettlement of many Laotian and Hmong refugees and asylum seekers in the United States especially former Hmong veterans and their family members who served in the U.S. Secret Army. One of these refugee families was the family of a boy named Chai Vang. Vang and his siblings relocated to the United States in 1980 and eventually settled in California. Vang lived in Sacramento and eventually enlisted in the California National Guard. He served six successful years with the California Guard earning a good conduct medal and attaining a marksman class sharpshooter qualification badge. Vang was 32 when he moved his family out to St. Paul, Minnesota. By this time, he had followed the Hmong tradition of becoming his family's shaman, part of which was actively hunting and spending time in nature. This could be why he had chosen to move his family out to a place where the attitude to hunting was much more relaxed. St. Paul is just a two-hour drive away from Meteor, Wisconsin, a wild area of the state in which deer hunting is particularly popular. Meteor extends over a large, sparsely populated area, and the land is a mix of public and privately owned. It was a Sunday, November 21st, 2004, when a hunting party of about 15 people were in a cabin on some private land just outside of Meteor. 
Terry Willers, one of the owners of the private land, left the cabin and saw Chai Vang sitting in a deer stand. Willers used a handheld radio to ask the people still in the cabin whether or not anyone should be in that stand. Upon receiving a response in the negative, he approached Vang and told him to leave the property. Vang then apologized and started moving south towards a woodland trail. A witness had later stated that Terry had said he was going to go talk to him to find out who he is, why he's there, and make sure he knows that he's on private property and that he's not welcome there. I thought this to be interesting, so we went to see what it was about to go down. A confrontation followed. One of the hunting party flipped over the hunting tag on Vang's back to get his license number. The events after the confrontation are disputed. A violent altercation broke out and four of the eight victims were shot in the back. Three of these four were hit by multiple rounds. Vang is believed to have fired around 20 bullets from a high-caliber Saiga rifle which was later recovered by police. One of the wounded hunters died the next day, bringing the toll to six dead and two wounded. Vang fled the scene on foot and discarded his remaining ammunition, later stating that he did not want to shoot anyone else. Vang eventually came across another hunter riding an ATV, who had no affiliation with the victims, and this hunter offered to give Vang a ride, eventually taking him to Vang's cabin. Vang was arrested when he returned to his cabin five hours after the shooting. An officer waiting for Vang placed him into custody and transported him to the Sawyer County Jail. His bail was set at $2.5 million. There have been conflicting reports about what may have led to the shootings. According to subsequent oral statements by Vang, one of the local hunters, Terry Willers, took the first shot at him, and therefore the shootings were in self-defense. No shell casing was ever recovered from Willers' gun, even during the trial. Another of the hunters admitted to firing a single shot later during the incident when Vang, noticing that there were survivors, fired at him again. Others testified that no shots were fired before Vang started shooting. Vang stated that race was a factor alleging that during the verbal dispute, some of the local hunters yelled out racial slurs at him. On the stand, Hesebeck admitted that Robert Cruteau had called Vang among a-hole. The group of hunters also admitted that they had told law enforcement that they'd had problems with trespassers in the past, specifically citing among hunters who often travel to Wisconsin from Minnesota to hunt. The term mud duck is often used in western Wisconsin to refer to Minnesota residents. Willers used this term to describe Chai Vang when he radioed back to the cabin. Though the term does not necessarily have a racial connotation, Vang's defense attorney argued that it did due to the fact that the group did not know at the time that he was from Minnesota. During his trial, Vang told the jury he feared for his life and began firing only after another hunter's shot nearly hit him. He detailed for the jurors how the other hunters approached him and how he responded by shooting at each one. He says he shot two of the victims in the back because they were disrespectful. He recounted with clarity how he killed each victim. While saying on the stand that he wished it hadn't happened, it was his opinion that the three of the hunters deserved to die. Vang further testified that they deserved to die because he accused me of giving him the finger and tried to cut in front of me to stop me from leaving. They also deserved to die because he had had a gun. Vang reenacted his deeds while on the stand using his hands and arms to imitate the motions of firing a rifle. 
Vang's lawyers commented that some of his abnormal remarks were due to the language barrier. Therefore, when Vang responded affirmatively to the question that the hunters deserved to die, his meaning implied that the men contributed to the circumstances that led to their deaths. On September 16, 2005, Chai Vang was found guilty of all six charges of first-degree intentional homicide and three charges of attempted homicide by a jury of eight women and four men. He was sentenced to six consecutive life terms plus 70 years, four for two counts of attempted homicide plus five additional years for each count of homicide in the first degree, a sentence of life without parole. At the time, Wisconsin was one of 12 states in the United States that did not have the death penalty, so unlike his victims, Chai Vang would escape a death he may well have richly deserved. I was around 16 at the time of this happening. Firstly, I'd like to explain what type of person I am so my actions make a bit of sense. I'm an average-looking girl, a bit overweight, which for my country makes me really undesirable. For this reason, I'm not used to males hitting on me or even considered it a possible assurance back then. You can say that I'm usually the man in our group. You know, the girl that looks after every other friend when they're drinking and if a guy is being rude or harassing someone... I'm the one to shut him down. I don't know why I took on this role, probably because my friends are way too naive and nice. Well, I'm like that to strangers when I'm alone. I always try to be helpful to people if they look confused or ask me for directions or anything else. On this particular night, I was going home from school. My high school is in the city center and I take the bus home. Since the buses get overcrowded during peak hours and I really hate being between crowds of people, I normally wait around 30 minutes to an hour to catch the bus. This night I walk to another bus stop, around 5 stops before the one to my school's so I can kill time and take an empty bus. It was dark and I was the only one on that stop. I usually don't have a problem with going out alone late at night as I don't have the men bad assault mentality drilled into me. So I'm just minding my own business when this 45 to 50 year old man comes up to me. He has a very friendly face and smile so I don't think anything of it. He asks me something and then I realize he's Turkish. I tell him I don't understand so he uses basic Bulgarian words he knows and I somehow understand that he's just asking for directions. Of course I try my best to explain and after I feel like he understood I expect him to just stop talking to me. Nope. He sat disturbingly close to me and started talking to me, again in Turkish. I try to be polite and politely ignore him as best I can while nodding my head with a smile, looking at the timetable. For some reason, this guy starts asking me for my phone number. At this moment, I realized that this was definitely not only a lost foreigner. I tried to shut him down, saying I don't have a phone. Don't ask why I thought that was going to work. I finally give in and tell him a random phone number. He says something else to me, again in Turkish, and then the worst thing happens. All this time I'm looking at the one minute the bus will be coming in. I'm praying for him to please not try to call the number. He does. And he shows me and asks why my phone isn't ringing. My stomach just flipped. I tried to think of something fast. Then I remembered that I have my old Motorola in my bag. I usually brought it to school to give it to teachers who collected phones during class. 
Also, I like playing games on it. In 2014, yeah. Fortunately, the battery was dead, so I just pretended that this is the reason the call isn't going through. I see this guy try to argue, but at this moment the bus comes and I get on. I sit on the seat behind the driver as always. After ten minutes, I get this weird feeling. I don't know what it was, but it felt like I was being watched. So I look around, but since I'm in the front seat, I can't exactly see everything. Luckily, our buses have this gigantic mirror on the inside that shows the whole bus. I look into that, and I can clearly see him. He's sitting in the last seat, his legs clearly visible, and I start to panic. I'm still not sure he's following me, but I'm also a very cautious person, so I can't really ignore this. I start checking for him at every stop, and he's still there. I get paranoid and say forget it, and get off the bus. The stop was at our local mall, and luckily it worked till 10pm. I decide to go in, and if he follows, then I'll try to sneak out. He follows alright. You have to understand that in my town, almost nobody goes out after 9pm. The mall is close to empty. I look around thinking of ways to disappear, but there's just no way. The mall is an open space. There are three floors, all almost empty. I'd be easily spotted anywhere. Now, you'll probably say, you should have asked the security for help. No. In Bulgaria, we don't do that. That literally never even went through my mind. The security is just some grandpa that walks around all day. They don't actually do work or anything. If it were today, I might not be as stupid, but back then, this wasn't even an option in my head. Besides, the security wasn't even around. So I do the most logical thing I can do, and I decided to utilize the knowledge I've acquired in the previous week. You see, the mall had a cool corridor system behind the stores. It was completely unmarked by any signs, and if you didn't know where you are going, you'd probably get lost, because it's just endless white corridors that lead to empty rooms for storage or some other stuff. Well, me being an avid anime fan, love going around these corridors and pretending I'm a ninja from Naruto on a mission. Sixteen-year-olds, am I right? So I can proudly say that I learned the right path to the back stairway of the mall. Because I was smart and obsessed with the idea of being a spy, I decided to lure this creepy guy into the corridor and then just go out from the back end of the mall. I firstly entered H&M and pretended to look around just to see if he was really stalking me. He didn't even try to hide. He stood outside the store, just staring in. I got really scared for a second, but then I remembered I'm like the best 007 agent out there, so I just continued walking around the mall. I finally entered the corridors, and at this point I booked it to the staircase. At one point I heard the doors open at the top of the staircase, and I could see that it was him looking down, following me still. I ran out and didn't stop running for two bus stops. I tried looking back, but there was no one, so I proudly decided that I'm a hero and went home. Today, being 21 years old, I just think about how naive I was back then, and how I'd probably be 10 times as scared today as I was back then. I'm a 24-year-old female that fell in love with national parks. So much so, I decided to work full-time at one for three years. This experience allowed me to meet some great people, but it also welcomed some sketchy individuals. 
This particular story starts with a man that we'll call Sam. Sam was a tall man with a shaved head and glasses. He was the kind of co-worker that would always linger awkwardly. He made everyone feel uncomfortable, but not enough to warrant any concern. The only issue that I really noticed was that he seemed like he had a drinking problem. He would show up to work, still drunk, and be sent home somewhat regularly. He seemed innocent, though, in a socially awkward way. I only worked with him for a few months before I was transferred to another location and was offered a pay raise. A few months after starting the new position, I was in the employee break room browsing my news feed when I received five messages within a three-minute time span. I didn't even realize people could type that fast. The messages were from Sam, something that caught me off guard because I had never spoken to him outside of my last position. The messages consisted of vague threats regarding my friends and myself. He seemed upset to find out that I had gay friends and thought that I was tainted from association. I was less upset at his foul perception of me and more angry that he had targeted my friends who were truly lovely people. I am bad when it comes to taking the high road and decided to give this man a piece of my mind. We weren't friends, hardly acquaintances, so I didn't feel that his behavior was appropriate and quite frankly I was angry. Through our exchange, the original rude context of the messages became obviously threatening. He told me that I should die along with my gay friends and that he'd be more than happy to end our misery. I was shocked. His anger didn't make sense to me and I realized that I wasn't going to reason with this lunatic so I decided to get HR involved. We worked within the same company so I thought this would be the best route to prevent any further harassment. HR advised me to block contact from him while they investigate but to also alert authorities in case he decided to act out his threats. Authorities were involved and didn't seem too phased by the messages that I showed them. They almost seemed annoyed that I bothered calling them in the first place. I filled out a statement and was told to contact them if anything progressed. The next day, I woke up to find trash all over my front steps. Odd, but not too strange. I actually thought it was a raccoon since I was in a national park. Then I saw a piece of paper with the words, Watch your back, scribbled onto it. I looked around the other neighboring cabins to see if anyone was watching, but... I didn't see anyone. I cleaned up the mess, but saved the note. I wanted to show my sister who lived with me. When she got back home later that morning, I caught her up on the previous night's events. She didn't even know Sam because, like I said, we weren't friends. Why would I mention them in my personal life? I gave her a brief description in case she saw him lurking around and headed to work. Halfway through my shift, I get a phone call from Alexa. She sounds shaken when she tells me that a man matching Sam's description came to our cabin and asked about me and where I was. She played dumb and pretended to not even know who I was after an awkward silence. He said, I'll be back to get her later, and walked away. She said he sounded and acted like he had been heavily drinking and had an intense coldness to him. I'm not messing around at this point and I have watched enough crime shows to know that you shouldn't underestimate people. So I called the company's security team and asked to have someone check on my sister to be escorted home immediately. I'm home within 20 minutes of her phone call. She gave security some more information and they were able to find out which cabin he resided in. Apparently he only lived about a two minute walk down our street which was really unnerving. 
park rangers are called again and they get more statements from the both of us and decided to pay him a visit. They seem to be taking the situation a bit more seriously now that he knows where I live. They come back after talking to his roommate. It's confirmed that he lives there but hasn't been home since the night before. Authorities put a word out to keep an eye out for Sam. They offer to have a unit keep an eye out on us that night, which we gladly accept and we go to bed. I wake up to 34 messages from an unknown number. It was Sam again. He was very angry that I got HR and Rangers involved. He said terrible things, that I was going to pay for this, that I messed with the wrong person, and that he was going to end me. I email HR and present them screenshots of the messages and texts. I demand they resolve this immediately and want to set up a meeting with the director to discuss termination. See, in national parks, when you're hired, the company provides cheap housing on site, and when you're fired, you have to leave the national park boundary within 24 hours. So I thought this would solve the majority of my issues. They seem to agree with me and try to locate Sam for a meeting. No one has seen him since the first messages began two days prior, so the park is on a manhunt. The park is huge, and it's easy to hide if you don't want to be found. Thankfully, his roommate alerted officials when Sam stumbled home drunk the next day. They were able to speak with him and sober him up enough to take him to the HR building a couple of hours later. After the meeting, I'm notified that he had been given a first and final write-up and will continue to work and live on my street. He apparently gave a sob story about his personal issues and promises to leave me alone. I was baffled that even with him threatening to hurt me, they weren't going to fire him. Thankfully, the rangers were equally surprised and so offered to provide surveillance just in case. It was quiet for three days. I thought it was actually over and started to feel bad for Sam, actually. I thought maybe he was just going through something and I was just his mental punching bag, I suppose. I didn't agree with it, but I no longer felt as threatened, if that makes sense. That was until I received a knock on my door and opened it to find two rangers wanting to speak with me. According to the rangers and a few people from the HR department, Sam's roommate had to call the emergency line when Sam started acting bizarre after the meeting and tried to convince him to lure me to a secluded place so Sam could take care of me. Thankfully, his roommate wasn't a psycho and reported the situation immediately once Sam went to the bathroom. Rangers were on site within minutes and had restrained Sam in order to search their cabin for evidence. They ended up finding a loaded firearm and a note that stated that he was going to end me and then take his own life. There was plenty of evidence for a case and he was successfully banned from all national parks in the United States. I have since moved to a different state and have changed my contact information. He has since contacted me once to brag about how much I helped him secure unemployment benefits, which I quickly shared with officials. According to officials, he is restricted to a southern Arizona county due to other crimes that he later committed and that I shouldn't worry about him finding me. As for HR, the director actually had to deal with harassment from Sam after the banning and asked me to testify on her behalf if it turned into something more sinister. I haven't heard anything since, so I'm assuming she found another way to stop his assault. I don't understand why he decided to target me. We hadn't had very many interactions, even at work. 
I have tried to dig through memories to find a single time that I may have invited this kind of behavior, but I'm convinced it was due to many factors, including his instability and alcoholism. Up until junior year of high school, I flew mostly under the social radar and stuck to my status as a nerd girl. But when I was 15, I joined Varsity Cheer. My school's cheerleaders weren't popular by definition, but everyone kind of knew who you were because we were on the announcements, performed at pep rallies, and generally engaged with the students a lot. I made a lot of friends that year and some of them happened to be the cool kids. For a while, I thought this was my long-awaited karma payoff for the years of bullying I'd suffered at their hands. I even developed a crush on one of them. A crush which the junior cheer captain herself volunteered to help me pursue. Homecoming is a big deal where I'm from, and I began to fantasize about my crush asking me to go with him. I'd heard rumors he was planning a dramatic proposal, and as homecoming season approached, I became more and more sure I would be his date. The junior cheer captain, who was close with him, kept dropping hints that I was right. One day at practice, she asked me what my favorite candy was, and I knew it would be so my crush would know what to give me. You can imagine my surprise when, after an exhausting theater rehearsal, I walked into the parking lot and was confronted by a guy I'd hardly spoken to, asking me to be his date. My theater friends all applauded, assuming I was overjoyed. I saw both my parents in the parking lot recording the whole surprise, but most importantly, the cool kids I'd recently befriended were standing right there behind him, egging him on. I didn't understand why, because he wasn't popular at all. In fact, he was known to be kind of creepy. The junior cheer captain was laughing and encouraging him to give me the box of my favorite candy he was holding. She definitely orchestrated the whole thing. I didn't really know the guy, but... I didn't want to humiliate him in front of the coolest kids in school, so I faked a smile and rolled with it. I promised myself I'd deny him later in private so he wouldn't be embarrassed. Afterwards, when my parents excitedly asked me how I felt about the ordeal, I explained how uncomfortable it made me. I said that I got super strong, creepy vibes from the guy. That didn't fly with my parents. My mother accused me of having expectations too high, and my father demanded to know not for the first time, if I was secretly a lesbian. I had never had a boyfriend or shown much interest in dating. To make his case stronger, I'd just become best friends with the only openly gay girl our school has ever seen. Long story short, I knew that if I shut down my date, I'd effectively declare war on my parents. However, I played my dad's protective instinct against him and persuaded him to let me friendzone my date. After all, he knows how high school boys think, right? I texted my date that night and explained that I only saw us as friends, but would still be happy to go to homecoming with him. He was very polite about it, although I could tell he was interested in me romantically. It seemed we reached a deal until the next day at school, when one of my cheerleader friends referred to my date as my boyfriend. I corrected her and told her we're just going to homecoming as friends. She seemed confused and told me my date was telling anyone who could listen that I was his girlfriend. A few more of my friends approached me with similar comments and I confronted my date about them. He denied all involvement and suggested it was just a rumor. I reminded him that we were just friends and I had zero romantic interest in him. He said he understood. 
I got a call from the junior cheer captain. She pretended to be sweet and conspiratorial, but I was still annoyed that she'd led me to believe my crush would ask me to homecoming. She began her attempt to persuade me that I was wrong to friendzone my date. She said that she'd spent many afternoons planning his proposal with him, and she knew he was kind of creepy from afar, but he was sweet and caring underneath all that. I said if he was such a catch, she should date him. Annoyed, she dropped the sweet act. She told me that I had to date him because he liked me so much and he'd gone through so much trouble to ask me to homecoming. I had to give him a chance because he'd gone out on a limb for me. I told her she was wrong and I didn't have to do anything I didn't want to do and I owed him nothing. I ended up hanging up on her soon after that, but that was just the beginning. Starting the next Monday, he would corner me in the hallway and give me a rose he'd held in his teeth. He usually did so between my sixth and seventh periods when my path through the hall crossed his. I was deeply uncomfortable with this and told him so, but he wouldn't stop. I took different routes to escape him, but the junior cheer captain and her posse made a point of tracking me down so he could find me elsewhere. Every time he did this, Everyone in the area would treat it as a sweet romantic gesture, despite my obvious discomfort. Wouldn't any girl be lucky to have a boy so devoted to her that he gave her a rose every day? He was still telling everyone I was his girlfriend. The final straw for me was when he walked into a class he wasn't in to find me and give me my daily rose. My teacher, who was friends with the junior cheer captain, let this happen. For weeks afterwards, she would ask me about my date every day. When he came in, I told him to get out and leave me alone. His feelings were clearly hurt, and he left looking like a kicked puppy. My classmates started calling me cold and hard. It didn't matter what I'd said to them about him. I was an ice queen, refusing this sweet boy's advances. Everyone in the school had decided that I was in love with him, and nobody cared what I had to say about it. My crush who was part of the popular group, joined the junior cheer captain in pressuring me into returning my date's feelings. At every event where the cheerleaders were present, my date would push his way to the front of the crowd. He would go to great lengths to get my attention. At football games, he would wave a flag in the student section so I'd look at him when we were cheering. The other girls would make comments on how endearing he was when he waited in the parking lot by our bus back to the school, just to hug me and tell me how great I did. I didn't know what else to do other than let this happen. I had only recently ascended to a position of visibility. If I conflicted too hard with the cool kids who were so dead set on setting me up with this guy, I could be an outsider all over again. I hoped that if I just kept ranting to my real friends about how creepy he was and publicly let him do what he wanted, it would all blow over. My school had a 15 second attention span so some scandal had to one-up me sooner or later. The truth emerged, as usual, in the locker room. It turns out the junior cheer captain had been telling him during their afternoons together that I was into him. He'd come to her for help announcing his crush on me, and she'd gone a step further and convinced him I felt the same, despite the fact that I didn't even know his name. She'd lied to him for weeks prior to the homecoming proposal, and when I told her that was wrong, she didn't care. She told me I should be grateful, because everybody was starting to think that I was gay. My best friend, the lesbian who was starting a gay revolution, and I inspired and spread a rumor that we were dating. After all, everybody already thought I was gay, right? But my date wasn't phased. In fact, he told everyone that he'd just turned me straight again. 
ill. Three weeks after he asked me, it was finally homecoming night. Thanks to cheer obligations and a complete coincidence involving a switched backpack that left me without my dress, I ended up only attending the dance for half an hour. My date awkwardly stood on the side of the room while I danced my heart out to Mr. Brightside. I almost felt bad for him when, right at the end, the junior cheer captain appeared like a summoned demon to suggest we slow dance at the next opportunity. Thank God I escaped that one by walking to the DJ and suggesting he play Footloose. My date walked me out to the parking lot to wait for my mom to pick me up. While we waited for her to drive around, which took entirely too long because she still hoped I'd stop making a fuss and date him, he asked me out. I politely declined. He quickly stammered that we could go with a group of people, like the junior cheer captain and my crush. I denied him again and made it clear that we were only friends and I wasn't interested in romantic endeavors because I was too busy. That was actually true. I wasn't in all advanced classes, varsity theater and cheer and work part-time. A few days later, a teacher eloped in Vegas, and nobody cared about my love life anymore. My date and I were distanced again by classes and activities and work. It appeared that everything was going back to normal. That Friday at the football game, my crush asked me to sit on his shoulders for the alma mater, kind of a romantic thing at my school. Overjoyed, I accepted and hoped this was the beginning of a new chapter for me. I ignored the frantically waving flag in the stands. Monday, my date stood on a chair in his second period class and announced that everyone should be wary of my crush because he would steal your girl. I heard everyone buzzing about it for a few hours later when someone called me a terrible name again for breaking my date's heart. I knew I was being dramatic, but I decided to not go to lunch that day, terrified of running into him. I'm so glad I didn't. Later I saw on Snapchat that my date had carved my name into his arm with a pair of scissors. His bleeding arm was screenshotted and sent to me by half a dozen people, most of them demanding why it hurt him like this. He did it in the middle of lunch in a crowded cafeteria and somehow no administration noticed or cared. The school was buzzing. My date was a broken-hearted victim and I was the evil, secretly gay woman who wouldn't give him a chance. I got so many dirty looks. By fifth period, I was ready to just walk out, but my good girl instincts kicked in and I decided to tough it out for two more hours. Around that time, I got a panicked text from one of my cheer friends. While she'd initially been insistent that I date the creepy guy, she apparently changed her mind after the lunch incident earlier. She told me that my date, who was in her fifth period class, was going off the rails. He had started out saying that he wanted to end his own life because I wouldn't love him. This had escalated to saying that he would hurt my crush for lying to me and stealing me away. Finally, he'd started talking about how he knew where I lived. My parents had given him my address when he initially wanted to ask me to the dance at my house, and he would make me pay for wronging him. I knew that after sixth period, our paths through the hall would cross. Since the beginning of this ordeal, the school had cracked down on students going outside and my alternate route to escape him was no longer an option. My class was at the far end of the hallway with nowhere to go into the central hub, and he would be coming from the other end of the hallway towards mine. I was stuck up a chimney, basically. Desperate, I texted the junior cheer captain to finish what she had started and tell him that I was not and had never been interested in him. She'd made this mess, and I would make sure that she had cleaned it up. 
She said that she'd go to the counselor, but she didn't know what else to do. That was way beyond her control now. For the first and only time, I skipped class. I hid out in the theater hall and waited for seventh period. I got a few texts during the passing period that my date was waiting for me by the bathrooms. There was a little alcove right there where you can't see people coming around the corner, and the thought of him hiding there and waiting for me to walk by alone horrified me. Right before seventh period began, a few of my classmates burst in, cackling and proclaimed that my date was coming down here after school to hurt my crush. They thought this was hilarious, but judging by the look on my crush's face, this wasn't a joke to him anymore. Our teacher brushed this off as typical theater drama, pun fully intended. I watched the clock and tried not to cry, knowing that by the time the bell rang my date would be outside, waiting for me and my crush to emerge. That day ended up being a work day, so my crush and I were able to escape the classroom and hide out elsewhere in the theater hall to get away from him. He opted for the black box theater and I went for the lighting closet. Obviously, I didn't witness what happened, but my best friend filled me in afterwards. Allegedly, my date had turned up three minutes before the bell rang and stood outside the classroom where we couldn't see him when we opened the door. He told everyone standing around that he was ready to have a knife fight with my crush. We didn't know if he actually had a knife or not, but the idea that he might was enough to terrify me. His arm was wrapped in a paper towel that he was bleeding through. My best friend told him my crush and I were gone, but he didn't believe her. He stood outside for 25 minutes until the administrators began walking through to make sure no one was in the school who shouldn't be. My date wasn't in theaters, so he wasn't allowed to stick around. That night I texted them that not only would I never date him, he could no longer even see a friendship between us. I sent him a number and told him to get help. Finally, I told him that he needed to learn what no meant, and I never wanted to speak to him again. He responded that he was sorry, and asked if there was anything he could do to fix this, and I told him no. I don't think he learned the meaning of the word after all, because the same pattern repeated itself a few months later on Valentine's Day, the next year at homecoming, senior year Valentine's Day, and prom. But those are other stories. I've since graduated and gone off to college hundreds of miles away from him. My family back home moved from the address my parents gave him. Contrary to popular belief, I'm not gay. My crush, on the other hand, came out a few months later, and we were friends for the rest of high school. I'm working on handling romantic endeavors in a healthy way, but he got in my head. He was the first person to ever show interest in me. Ironically, the last time I saw him was my first and only homecoming game after graduating. But this time, I had true friends to defend me when he predictably tried to pull some weird stuff with me. The worst part looking back was somehow being at fault for everything. To this day, people from my high school reference the whole ordeal as the time you wouldn't date that poor shy kid. I can't even appreciate red roses anymore. To follow up, I really appreciate the support I'm getting from part one. I've been keeping pretty quiet about the whole experience for years because I thought no one would believe me. I'm really happy you guys do for the most part. I answered some questions about details on part one, which I'll repeat here to clear some stuff up. Part one happened in 2015 when I was in junior in high school. I'm a junior in college now. I was 15 during the first homecoming debacle because I'm young for my grade. 
Everyone else involved was 16 or 17 at the time. My parents, after all this played out, had very different reactions. My mother apologized for not believing me in the first place and pressuring me to lower my standards. My relationship with her has become a success story in the past four years, and this experience jump-started its evolution. On the other hand, my father has rewritten the narrative entirely and insists he never once advocated I go to homecoming with my date. He says he was always wary of this kid, and he also did never ask if I was gay. I'm not. I'm bi, actually, but I didn't realize it until senior year of high school. I didn't go to the guidance counselor yet because she was known to be bad at her job, as you'll see in this continuation. She victim-blamed a lot, and she would usually bring up her religion to solve students' problems, regardless of her school being public and non-religious, and she was fired after I graduated in 2017. My high school and home district in general was an administrative nightmare. I've heard from younger friends that after a massive staff turnover, things are starting to look up, but none of it improved during my time there. My story was perfectly in character for the level of ignorance my school expressed towards unhealthy activity. My date didn't and doesn't use social media, at least not to my knowledge. I found an abandoned Twitter account that looked like it might belong to him, but it was last active in 2016. I have no contact with him at all anymore, which I guess is a happy ending. A few people have implied I'm making all of this up. They're not the first, and they probably won't be the last to say so. Even I know this is wild, and that's why I didn't say a word about it for years. I don't feel the need to prove my honesty to random strangers on the internet. If there's anything I learned from this nightmare, it's that people only believe what they want to believe. The truth is, is that I had a really weird experience, and it affected my life in a lot of ways. Believe it or don't, I still have to deal with its repercussions on a daily basis. This post is less of an update than it is a continuation. Long story short, my ex-date didn't get the message after homecoming junior year, and he ended up pulling some seriously weird stuff even after until we graduated. None of it was as epic as junior year homecoming, but it definitely cast a shadow over the latter half of my high school experience. From here on out, due to his activity for the next two years, I'll be referring to him as my stalker. For the months after homecoming, things started to settle down again. I didn't have any classes with my stalker, and the only person I still had to deal with was the junior cheer captain. She would go out of her way to be nice to me, inviting me to parties and buying me coffee and giving me rides to games, basically bribing me to keep quiet about what a manipulative person she was. My stalker reappeared on Valentine's Day 2016. I was still a junior, but... I had almost forgotten that homecoming even happened when, halfway through my day, he cornered me in the hallway and gave me a rose out of his teeth. I hoped that that would be the end of it, but I underestimated my classmates' appetite for drama. During seventh period theater, we were in the library computer lab. After the rose thing, my crush from fall semester, who had since come out as gay, warned us that my stalker was carrying around a present for me in his backpack. I thanked him for the heads up and told my best friend, gay revolution lesbian. She and I were sitting together on the inside of a row when the bell rang. We stood up next to leave, but the girl on the other side of me turned to face us, blocking us off from the exit. She was a close friend of the junior cheer captains. She asked me what I was doing after school, and I knew that she must be trying to herd me towards my stalkers so I could collect my presents. I leveled with her and said that I knew my stalker was waiting for me somewhere, 
and I told her straight up that I wasn't going to play nice with him anymore. She turned on the same old guilt trip as everyone else, telling me how much he cared about me and how hard he worked on these presents, but I refused to go. I knew I needed to get out of the school as soon as possible before she just told my stalker to come meet me at the library instead of the theater hall. To get her out of my way, I said I needed to go meet him after I went to the bathroom, and she moved out of the walkway. My best friend and I hid out in the bathroom, farthest from the theater hall. I knew he wouldn't leave until he delivered his gifts, and we had rehearsal that day so I knew I'd have to go down there sooner or later. My best friend suggested she go down and retrieve the presents for me so he'd leave before I had to go to a rehearsal. Two more of my friends happened upon our bathroom crisis, and they decided to link up with my best friend on her mission. I waited in the bathroom while they went to intercept the gifts. Twenty minutes later, they returned. Among the gifts were three boxes of my favorite candy, which I didn't really like anymore thanks to this whole mess, an expensive Doctor Who jewelry box, and a full bouquet of roses, again. They told me, laughing uncontrollably, that there had been a whole group of people waiting for me to walk into the theater hall. My stalker wasn't too happy to hand over the presents, but my best friend made it clear I wouldn't be coming to get them, so he could hand them over to my friends or never deliver them at all. After about ten minutes, the group waiting for me dissipated and my stalker gave away the gifts. I was so creeped out that I didn't keep any of them. For my birthday a few weeks later, I go out of school after fourth period and went to a theme park with my cousin. I didn't tell anyone I was leaving or where I was going. My best friend told me my stalker had waited outside the theater hall for me with a letter and a rose in hand until the school kicked everyone out who wasn't in theater. I was an assistant director and light crew for a one-act play that spring. An acquaintance of mine who didn't keep up with gossip was in charge of making the program and she mentioned how cute my boyfriend was for taking out an ad in the program for me. I was sufficiently freaked out, told her I didn't have a boyfriend, and asked to see the ad he'd paid for. It was a picture of my stalker and I from Junior Homecoming, along with a note that said something like, Good luck, saucy. I love you. I begged my friend not to put it in the program, and she didn't, seeing my obvious discomfort. She refunded him his money and made some excuse about a local business buying more ad space. He tried the same trick for the last show of the year, which I was actually in. He showed up to the opening night and got kicked out for filming. The theater department has now instituted a widespread rule of checking with the person an ad is targeted at before printing it, which is more than school administration ever cared to do. During a cleanup day for theater the summer before senior year, a guy from a different school showed up to help. He had been talking to me over social media for a few weeks and I knew I was his next target. He'd made a game out of going on a date with every girl in our department. Sure enough, he'd asked me out while I cleaned up the prop closet and I agreed. He was decent looking and he wasn't mentally unstable, even if he was an idiot. I also knew that if I played my card right, I could turn this to my advantage he was using me, so I just made sure I got something out of it, too. We went on our dates. It was okay, no weird advances or anything, and he bought me dinner. On the way home, I directed the conversation towards homecoming. He caught my drift and asked me right there, no muss, no fuss. I said yes. Senior year started, my new date was all the way over at his school on the other side of town. My stalker was in two of my classes. 
fourth period biology and sixth period English, and had the same lunch as me. I was hyper aware of him staring at me every day, but didn't want to make a big deal out of it. I knew he wanted my attention and I refused to give it to him. Instead, I went about my life as usual. I made friends with the teachers who were lunch hall monitors so I could leave the cafeteria, effectively avoiding my stalker. I ate lunch in the theater hall with my best friend every day. I asked my biology and English teachers not to make me sit by him or work in groups with him and they agreed, if somewhat reluctantly. They, like pretty much everyone else, thought I was being a dramatic cheerleader making up stories. I was a senior and I really didn't want to deal with this nonsense of a crazy stalker anymore, not that I ever wanted to in the first place. Homecoming was even earlier this year than last year. In English class, my stalker sat near two theater girls who usually walked to 7th period theater with me and he turned around to ask them for ideas on how to ask me to homecoming. They were in the camp of classmates who were amused by my stalker's antics, so they wanted to rile him up and watch the fireworks. They also knew about the other idiot that I was talking to because theater kids are the worst gossips ever, and they gleefully told my stalker that I already had a date. He proceeded to attempt to bite his finger off in class, which went about as well as you might think. Obviously he didn't succeed, but he did draw blood, and he terrified my two theater friends who had incited his instability. He stared at me the whole time, and I sat on the other side of the room and ignored him. I didn't care what he did, I refused to give him my attention, and I wouldn't be intimidated by him anymore. After class, my two friends came up to me and told me the details about what had just happened. Together, the three of us approached the English teacher. She believed me fully this time. He was moved into a different English class by the next week. Side note, bless this teacher. She was the first adult I encountered who took action to protect me, and she continued to check in with me about the situation throughout the rest of senior year. Sixth period became nothing less than a sanctuary for me because, for once, somebody believed me and they were listening. I didn't have to worry about him after fourth period because I skipped lunch every day. I was getting confident about my escape maneuvers. I forgot to mention the third and weirdest self-harm incident. After getting kicked out of English class, he desperately wanted my attention, so he got a pass out of his class one day and found mine. He walked through the trash can outside the door to my class and I watched in horror and disgust as he pulled out a tooth and held his face over the trash can, spitting out blood. I know I said I wasn't giving him attention anymore, but the kid just ripped out a body part. I feel like I'm allowed to be terrified. Then my usual hall monitor was gone and I got stuck in the cafeteria. I had been out of lunch for so long that I had forgotten my stalker was in the same one until I had accidentally made eye contact with him, staring at me from across the room like some kind of grudged ghost. The second I saw him, he started speed walking across the room to my table. I ignored him, hoping he was just trying to psych me out, but it didn't work. He sat down in the seat next to mine. I was freaking out. I looked at the girl on the other side of me and begged her to get him out of here. She simply laughed at me. A year before, I would have kept quiet and dealt with my discomfort for fear of people hating me, but I was a year older and already contracting senioritis, so I stood up, grabbed my backpack, and stomped out of the lunchroom. The hall monitor stopped me, asked me where I was going and if I had a pass. I said I was going to talk to the crisis counselor and he let me go, 
probably because he didn't want to touch that with the ten-foot pole. I walked directly to the counselor's office, signed in, and found myself sitting in her office a few minutes later. I told her the whole story from the beginning. I had been to her office once before, and she shooed me away after saying I was being too dramatic. This time, she didn't. Instead, she spent the greater half of the hour I was there asking why I hadn't come to her when all this started. When I finally got her to address the actual problem, her first question reaffirmed my fears. She asked me, after I told her about the self-harm and threats and general creepery, what about him made me so opposed to dating him? I thought I was going to scream. I had a gut feeling that the truth wouldn't get me anywhere and I needed action. I didn't care how I got it done, but I needed him out of my life and definitely out of my classes. So knowing full well her attachment to Jesus, I pulled the Saving Myself for Jesus card. I put all those Sundays being forced to go to church to good use, and it worked. She stopped asking me why I'd waited, why not just date him, and asked what would make me feel safer. I told her to get him out of my schedule, and she said she'd look into my options. Within a few days, I was called back to her office. She had gotten him placed in another lunch period, but biology was only offered fourth period, and both of us needed it to graduate. I still considered this a victory. I only had to see him for 50 minutes every day. She told me to come talk to her whenever I needed someone to lean on. She would make sure my teachers understood. Fun fact, junior year, my best friend was assaulted by an adult man. When she left class mid-panic attack to go see the crisis counselor, she was told to pull herself together and get back to class before she missed anything important. My stalker found new methods of seeing me. My best friends didn't make the cast of Winter Musical, but I did. I didn't realize that I had been isolated until my stalker joined crew and regularly tried to intimidate me. He would drill holes and set pieces that didn't need work because I was sitting near them and he wanted to watch me flinch. He would steal the props I used and hide them in a shop so I had to be near him to retrieve them. My new crush and I were co-dance captains and she convinced her friend the set head to keep my stalker off stage at all times. After musical ended in spring, my new crush told me she'd heard my stalker was getting angry about me playing hard to get. I was hanging out in the theater hall with a few crew kids getting ready for one act play when one of them pointed at me, shocked, and went, you're saucy? He told me he'd seen pictures of my backyard. I was confused and weirded out, so he explained that my stalker had showed him pictures of my backyard and porch. I asked to see them, and he said he didn't have the pictures, he'd just been shown them by my stalker. I didn't really believe him, and he could tell, so he said, You have a big bay window in your living room, a bunch of bikes on your back porch, and a big rose bush. It was an accurate description. I don't know for sure how to explain that, but I've theorized that my stalker had at some point been in my backyard before we adopted our purebred Doberman. The doggo had freaked out in the middle of the night a few times, but we brushed it off. Now I wasn't so sure. My bedroom was in the front of the house, so I tried to reassure myself by thinking he hadn't seen me changing or anything super scary, but it didn't really help. My best friend was disowned by her mother and stepdad, and within a weekend, she was shipped off to live with her biological father. I told myself I could survive the next four months and graduate, and then I'd never see my stalker again. 
I persuaded my parents as prom and graduation approached that I only wanted one present, my best friend. They paid for her plane ticket both ways and flew her home to be my date to prom. I kept her a secret so I could surprise our other friends when she showed up at prom to dance with us. My stalker only briefly entertained the thought of asking me to prom, which I later discovered was the now senior cheer captain's doing. I guess she'd finally started to realize the full effect of her actions because she told him he needed to leave me alone. I don't know what else she said, but he went eerily silent in the weeks leading up to prom. He still came to the last play of the year, but he didn't film me this time. He waited for me outside the auditorium afterwards, but I was with other people on our way to cast dinner and he didn't try anything. At prom, my friends were elated when they saw my best friend had returned. We danced and talked a bunch of trash and had a great time together. It was honestly one of the best moments of my life when they walked in and saw her. Of course, my stalker tried one last time to change my mind. My friends and I were sitting at one of the tables together laughing and catching up, and I saw my best friend's expression turn into a glare when someone walked up behind me. I turned around to see my stalker waiting behind my chair. I stood up. I was taller than him in my heels and said as calmly as possible that he wasn't welcome here. I was also 17 and angry and feeling unstoppable, so I tacked on, and if you ever speak to me again, I'll rip your junk off. It was the last thing I ever said to him. My best friend flew away again, we all graduated, and everyone went our separate ways for college. I saw my stalker again at the first homecoming after I graduated high school, but he didn't talk to me. He just stared at me the whole time. Later, he showed up my sister's fall play at our alma mater, and he asked a cast member where she was and if I was there. Luckily for me, the cast member was one of my littles, and he told my stalker he needed to leave immediately. This all just happened only a few hours ago, so I am writing it down now while the memory is still fresh. My wife and I have been talking about it non-stop since it happened and have been unable to come up with any explanation that even begins to make sense. Please help us figure this out so we can forget about it. I'll try to make this as short as possible, but I need to make sure you get all the details so you can help us figure this mess out. Today we planned on going on a four-mile hike. The trail makes a big loop with the beginning point also acting as the ending point. The story begins in the trail parking lot. There were about five other cars in the lot, and out of the car nearest us came a middle-aged couple. We paid them no mind as we typically do with strangers, and as we headed off to the restroom before hitting the trail, they set off on their own hike. When we started the hike, we chose route number one, doing the loop counterclockwise. The trail itself makes a huge loop about four miles in length, with the parking lot being at the highest elevation, and the lowest point being the middle of the trail. The ascent from the bottom middle section to the top going either direction is extremely steep, slow, and slippery, and tough. This is important information for later. About 20 minutes into our overall three-hour hike, we reached point A, where we caught up with the older couple. About the time we caught up to them in the canyon, they decided to turn back towards the parking lot, passing us along the way. We exchanged smiles and waves as we passed and again thought nothing of it. From point A to point B, everything seemed totally normal. We were hot and tired, of course, but 
were enjoying ourselves and thought very little about the other couple. When we reached point B, about two-thirds of the way through the loop, just starting the uphill climb back towards the parking lot, however, things started to get a little weird. As soon as we exited the low-lying canyon region, we saw the same couple heading towards us, as if though they had returned to the parking lot and opted instead for route number two. We still didn't find this to be completely out of the ordinary, as the first canyon, around point A, was tough to get down, and it seemed that they were somewhat unprepared. The woman was wearing a knee-length skirt, a very bad choice for sliding down slippery canyon slopes and climbing steep rock bluffs, and it appeared they had not brought a pack with water or anything. We passed them again, exchanged pleasantries, and continued on. This time, though, we did talk briefly about the situation. We found it odd that they had made it far enough to meet us at this point, as the first parts of Route 1 and 2 were steep and slow, and the area between point A and B were pretty flat and steady. Considering the difference in terrain and their age, apparent physical conditions, we agreed it was awfully strange to see them at that point on the trail, but we continued on anyway, just shrugging and thinking no more about it. Soon afterwards, we made it to the outlook, which was a couple hundred feet above the bottom section of the trail and ten minutes past point B. As we paused to take some pictures and catch our breath, my wife pointed out she could hear their voices below in the canyon as we rested. We listened and mutually agreed that it was probably the same couple since the point the voices seems to come from would be the right spot for them to be at least given the location we saw them at and the lack of anyone else in the trail so far. Still, nothing too strange yet. That is, until we reach point C. Between the outlook and point C, which was 20 minutes from the end of the loop and 40 minutes past point B, was a wide graveled trail with steep drop-offs on either side. You could say it was sort of a ridge, as everything within the loop made a giant loop-sided bowl much like a volcano, with the elevation difference between the lowest point of the trail and highest point of the trail being 500 feet. This made the terrain around the trail seem pretty much impassable. It was extremely steep and covered in thick overgrowth and fallen trees. It seems to be pretty much a given that the established trail is the only way to get from the outlook back to the parking lot. As we neared point C, we were becoming increasingly exhausted and ready to be done. We stopped once or twice for about 30 seconds apiece to catch our breath, and as we got closer and closer to point C, it was as if the energy was sucked out of both of us. Of course, the trail was tough, but we had done it and many like it before, and it was not even 80 degrees outside. Even as our mental focus began to waver and we started noticing a significant change in our demeanor and attitude, we still marched on, knowing the end of the trail was near. When we reached point C, everything changed for the worse. Now keep in mind, we saw the older couple about 40 minutes earlier at point B, and there was no way to reach point C from there except the trail we were currently on. There were no shortcuts, there was no realistic way to pass us without us knowing, and no way to possibly beat us there. And yet, there they were, sitting on a bench on the side of the trail eating lunch at that. As we passed them, the man mentioned something about a picnic to us and smiled, laughing. We tried our best to respond in kind, but the mood was as if we had just walked into a gigantic black cloud of smoke. I don't know how else to explain it, but the area around them disoriented us completely, and we no doubt were pale as ghosts and obviously shaken. 
It wasn't a malevolent feeling, and they didn't seem aggressive or strange, but her brains were just shocked in a state of horror in seeing them there. It just wasn't... It just wasn't... It just wasn't possible. We passed on by then, and as soon as we were out of earshot, my wife turned to me with a face I had never seen before in my life. We were terrified. Without saying a word to each other, we both expressed the same feeling of shock. It felt as if though we had just walked through a time warp, or as if we had just brushed against another dimension. Our following discussion amounted to this. There is no way they could have beaten us there. Sure, maybe, possibly, just maybe there was a chance, but only if after seeing us at point B they sprinted through the woods in a direct line towards point C. Now this would require them to run up steep rock bluffs, through unmarked woods, and who knows what else for over a mile, in 40 minutes. That's how long it took us to get there going at a pretty good speed using the clear trail which as a crow flies was not that much longer than a direct route from B to C. We are in our early 20s and in decent shape and we were dead tired by the time we saw them and based on their apparent level of preparedness and fitness, no judgement here only stating what we could see, there's no way even if they did take a direct off the trail route they could have made it there before us. On top of that, they had somehow found two bud lights and a lunchbox full of sandwiches on the way and were already done eating by the time we met them at point C. All of these things combined with the overwhelming feeling we got when we encountered them at point C had left us in mental shambles for the past several hours. We have no idea what to make of this and no clue how to explain it in a way that even begins to make sense. Please, help us figure out what this was or who they were. It was a seven-year-old girl a little over 30 years ago when my best friend and I saw a lady get shot and stabbed. I lived in an apartment in Bellflower, California at the time. The apartment complex was in the shape of a rectangle with an open courtyard in the middle of it. It also had a swimming pool, which was where my friend and I were when this incident occurred. There are three security doors to enter into the complex itself. The front entrance is made out of thick glass and you need to use either a key or a code to enter. If you're a visitor, you call the apartment number and get buzzed in. There was a driveway on the side of the complex for tenants to park their cars. Unfortunately at this time, there was no security gate in the driveway before anyone could walk off the street into the tenant carports as well as the other two security doors. The other two security doors is located on the side of the complex and the other to the back. The detail of the layout is important as to the line of sight of my friend and I and the lady who was attacked. You cannot see the courtyard from the front glass door because of a privacy garden wall blocking the view. However, you can see the middle of the pool from the side security door and that's where this incident occurred. As I said, my friend and I were swimming in the pool. My friend's father was watching us while sitting on a pool chair reading. He was not in view of the side security door, but my friend and I were when the lady, I'm sorry I can't remember her name, walked up to the side security door. We knew her as she was a tenant in the complex. She was a nurse and must have gotten off of her shift as she was still in her scrubs. She was a black woman in her mid to late 30s. She was a very nice woman and I believe she lived alone at the time. 
My friend and I called out a hello to her and she said hello back as she was getting her keys so she could open the security door to come inside the complex. We were just hanging onto the side of the pool watching her when two men walked up to her. We didn't quite hear what was said except I do remember hearing her shout no. The two men seemed to be a bit young, possibly late teens or early twenties. One man was black with a fade haircut while the other man was either white or light skinned and had a bit of an afro. Their race and hairstyle is all I can remember of them. When we heard her scream out no, that is when I remember seeing one man pull out a gun and shot her. Then the other man pulled out a knife and stabbed her. She collapsed onto the ground, crying out loud. I don't know if my friend and I made a sound or what, but as we hung out on the other side of the pool in shock, the two men turned their heads towards us. Immediately, my friend and I ducked down into the water in the pool and she grabbed my hand and underneath the water we swam towards the shallow end of the pool where we would be out of view from the side door. My friend's father had heard the gunshot but was on the other side of the pool and would have to cross the side door entrance to go to his apartment to call 911. We had to wait a few minutes to ensure that the men did not enter as they now had the lady's purse and keys and could get inside the complex if they chose to. Once my friend's father knew they were not coming inside, he told us to stay in the pool and if they come in to duck back under the water. Then he ran to their apartment and called 911. I started to get out, but my friend pulled me back, asking what I was doing. I told her I wanted to see if the lady was okay, but my friend told me to stay otherwise. I could get hurt too. We were both crying and so worried for the lady. I can't remember much after this, as I tended to lose some memories of traumatic experiences when I was younger due to some trauma I had gone through as a child. I do remember some things though and as I got older I tend to have some flashbacks occasionally. My friend's father came back out and said the police and ambulance were on their way and for my friend and I to get into the apartment. My friend's mother was there so she took care of us while my father's friend went to check on the lady. I can't say for sure whether or not we were questioned by police and I've talked to my friend about this and she has a hard time remembering this as well. She actually completely forgot until I asked her about it after remembering myself. I do remember being told though that the lady did actually survive, thank God, but she never went back to that apartment complex again. No surprise there though. While the lady recovered in the hospital, her family members came and removed everything from her apartment. This was the last straw for the tenants. From what my parents told me, there were complaints about the safety of the carports and complex itself because there was no security gate in the driveway. The tenants requested to have a gate installed but the complex owner refused. However, after this incident, the owner installed a security gate to the driveway and the tenants had gate openers that they could use, kind of like garage door openers. As this was a traumatic event for my friend and I, I cannot even imagine how traumatizing this was for the lady who was attacked. We didn't live in the safest neighborhoods but we didn't have very many incidents like this that I can remember. I do remember having nightmares a few times after witnessing this. I would dream that the two men actually came into the complex and tried to hurt my friend and I. Not only am I glad that the lady survived, but that my friend, her father, and I were not hurt from those men. I don't know what we would have done if they did manage to get inside. We were only children, but maybe that could be why they didn't come inside. Or it could have been because they did this in the middle of the day where anyone could see. I don't know what happened to those men. I don't know if they were found and brought to justice. 
They could have been, and the adults just decided not to say anything else to us about this incident so my friend and I wouldn't be afraid. However, I'm just glad that I never had to meet them again. I'm a 17-year-old female. I'm not timid, though I can get a little awkward if I don't really know you. Now onto the story. This happened last year before I turned 16. So I'm a 15-year-old surfing on Facebook when I see a post from someone I know that lives on a town over. Now I have never hung out with her, but we have spoken on Messenger. I'll call her Lucy. I messaged her and tried to cheer her up, as her post was very negative about herself and her outlook on life. I mean, I've been there, so why not try to make someone feel better? That's a nice thing to do, right? Well, Lucy claimed me to be her best friend right afterwards. She said we were going to hang and do fun stuff. I was kind of weirded out, but then again, I had been really lonely, so I just went with it. She wanted me to spend the night. Now, my mom was leery about it, but she knew I needed friends and that I can't be isolated all the time. She gave in and told me to ask her where she lived. When I did, I was surprised to learn that she lived in a trailer park. I never hung out with someone who lived there. She was ashamed, but honestly, I thought it was kind of cool. I'd regret that later. I get there and my mom says she wants to meet her mom. Well, her mom never comes out. So my mom leaves and guess who comes outside? Lucy's mom, Rena. She didn't care that I was there or what she said apparently because she went... Guess she couldn't wait long enough. Hmm. I got a little ticked over it, seeing as we waited over 15 minutes for her to come outside. No joke, either. We get in, I lay my stuff down, and for the first few hours, everything went alright. That is, until she wanted me to go with her and her friends to beat up some guys. Yep, guys. She was on a voice call, screaming at them, saying we were going to get a ride and come over there. Then you guys are going to regret it. That's when I heard, come ahead, we have guns. This is when I get scared. I texted my boyfriend at this point in time and he was livid. He wasn't able to come get me for some reason so I just told him I'd see if it will calm down. It didn't. Threats coming across and back and forth getting more violent as they come and go. Ten more minutes go by and she finally hangs up. She calms at this point, well, I wouldn't say calm, just blank. She turned her head to me and just slowly asked, I'm going to a friend's. Are you coming or staying here? Obviously, I said I was going. I wasn't trying to have someone show up there while she is at a friend's. Her mother drove us to the house, which was, of course, in the more dangerous part of the town. It was approximately 15 to 20 minute walk back to the house. We go up, knock, and I heard a lock turn and a face looking through the crack of the door. She says some name and he shuts the door only to hear more locks unlocking until we were finally let inside. Right when I get inside you can smell it. Horrible, nauseating, even rotting smell. He locks the door back and tells us to go upstairs. So we do and here are two more large men sitting on the couch, smoking. We sat on the kitchen floor as it's a very small apartment. Now these men see me and I'm automatically uncomfortable. They start asking me questions like, what's my name? How old am I? How I know Lucy? While I'm being interrogated, Lucy is on the phone texting people, leaving me to entertain these guys. 
Of course, they ask us if we would smoke with them. Lucy did, but I didn't. I'm no goody two-shoes, but in that situation, something was off and I could feel it. Lucy decides that she wants to walk to Dairy Queen and told the guys to keep me comfy with a little wink. I nonchalantly texted my dad and told him, text me back ASAP, saying you're picking me up because of a family emergency. Do not ask questions, do not make it seem suspicious, and send the text and start heading this way. He does, and I tell Lucy, where in return I get an aggravated look. She wanted to know why, seeing as I haven't been there an hour. Of course I told her my father texted me saying there's a family emergency, which I showed her so she knew I wasn't pulling a leg. She didn't ask questions, just said, come back, and turned around to go sit on the couch. This is when my idiot self realized I still have to make it to her trailer alone. I'm in a town that I had never been to, and I need my belongings from the trailer because I was not planning on coming back, ever. I put on my GPS, and what do you know, it's low. Before I step a foot off the yard, a car pulls up real close to me on the curb, causing me to stop. I recognized it. It was the car that I saw coming into the building, and the guy that unlocks the door must have gone right back out it after locking the door again. He asked me where I'm going, and I quickly say I'm going to the hospital for an emergency, and that I'd be back later. His furious face was replaced with a suspicious expression, but all he said was, You better. While pulling away and pulling in their driveway. At this point, I'm running, scrambling, looking at my GPS and trying not to get lost. I make it to the trailer park, but it's all a big circle. I'm frantically looking for a trailer, scared out of my mind. There are men and women on their porch looking at me like I don't belong there, and they're right, I don't. My phone has died at this point, so I would have to go look at the numbers and go from there. Well, I find it, my parents are already in the driveway trying to call my phone. I walk up and hug my mom, telling her I'm sorry. For whatever reason, I had to make me think that this was my fault. I try the door to the trailer, and it's unlocked. I go in, get my stuff, and get out. Over the next few days, I get messages from her all throughout the day and night talking about me coming over again, or her finding out my address so we can hang out. I blocked her, only get texts from other people about her. I still do to this day, but I do my best to ignore it. I was warned, was told she was a psycho. I just thought she was upset and needed a friend. This happened in the fall of 2017. My sister Gigi was in high school. My parents took a trip out of country, so I was in charge of my sister. I temporarily lived in my parents' house while doing so. I took her to school and back, picked her up when she was at her friend's or boyfriend's house, and picked her up after her church meetings. I was told she started going to regular church on Sundays with her boyfriend and his family, which I'm happy that she's into. We grew up Catholic, but don't often go to church after we moved to the United States. But also... She was going to another church at nights with a friend of hers. I grew up with Sunday Mass and that's it. So the thought of spending extra time and free time going back to church was weird. But if she wanted to grow up as a super extra religious person, who am I to stop her? On Monday, she went to school and hung out with her boyfriend. I picked her up from her boyfriend's house, no big deal. Tuesday, 
She went to night church after school with her friend. I was told that they would get a ride from her friend's mom. She was supposed to be home at 9pm, came in a little late at around 9.40. I asked why and she said they were preparing for a retreat that Saturday. Seemed alright of an excuse and I trusted her so no big deal. Wednesday to Thursday, mostly normal. One day she went home after school and we hung out. Another day she was hanging out with friends. One of these days she was hanging out with her boyfriend and some friends and she asked me if she could go to church. This would be the second time going to the night church in the week. I remember thinking, when I was in high school, hanging out with friends did not cross with spending free time at church. They ended up not going, which relieved me a bit. At this point, I was getting weird vibes from the night church. Friday, day before the retreat, her plans were to go to night church after school and come home at 9pm. My plans were to hang out with friends and be home by 9pm as well. I'm driving back home a little late and text her to not worry her got no reply. Waited a bit and texted her again. No reply. Called her. No answer. At this point I was hoping she was already home and for some reason went to bed early. No. House was empty. I kept calling, texting, calling, texting, panicking. Around 10.45pm, almost two hours after she was supposed to be home, she calls me. She says that they are still in church preparing for the retreat and that she wasn't allowed to have cell phones on. I'm normally the cool older brother, but I lost it a bit, not towards her, but just got to the point, I'm coming to get you, text me the address, I don't care what you're doing, I'm coming to get you. I got a text with the address and drove to get her. I was a bit calm now that I heard her voice, but I was angry at the place. Once I got there, some lady was outside waiting for me, and she says, Sorry for the trouble, we're preparing for tomorrow, that's why Gigi is still here. No, th that's fine, I'm just in charge of Gigi for the week and our parents wanted Gigi home by 9pm every day, so can you go get her please? Well, Gigi can't come out right now. The sermon, or whatever she said, it's not over yet. At this point, I lost whatever patience I had left. You bring out Gigi right now or I'm calling the cops for kidnapping. I'm her legal guardian and she's under 18. I don't know the law well, but that's what I said. This sparked a light under her feet. The lady started walking inside and invited me inside. Do you want to come in? You're welcome to. Just go get my sister out. The lady walks inside and a moment later my sister and the lady come out. The lady is giving my sister some documents and a shirt and some information about tomorrow's retreat. In the car ride home, I'm trying to choose my words carefully when my sister goes, I don't want to go to that retreat tomorrow. Can I stay home and say you aren't letting me? Yes. Turn me into the bad guy, I don't care, you don't have to do anything you don't want to. Turns out, everything up until tonight was normal church stuff. Tonight, they turn it up to 11. People all around were seizing, yelling, throwing up. They were feeding people something which was causing this, and the smoke and air smelled funny, according to my sister. I kept asking my sister if they fed her something, but she said no. They weren't supposed to feed my sister anything until she goes to her first retreat. The retreat, which the night church said they paid for her, making it seem like they were generous, was supposed to be an initiation or commitment to the place. According to my sister's friend, who already went to the initiation, they gave you something that makes you sick, represents the evil leaving you, and you feel sick for a week or two. The people there tonight were scary and didn't look right in the head. I read the stuff that they gave my sister, all culty stuff, 
and BS. The place looked like a house that was made to look like a small church too. I also later found out from my aunt that their church name didn't make any sense, at least from a Catholic point of view, and they weren't listed or officially a church by any legal standard. Needless to say, my sister never went back to that church ever again. Two summers ago, my now ex-girlfriend Kat and I were sitting next to the edge of this cliff at a beach on New York's North Shore overlooking the water, with a very nice view of Connecticut's coastline. It was super dark, the only real light source being the full moon above us. We were just chilling, looking up at the clear night sky, looking for shooting stars, one of our favorite nighttime activities. The whole reason we always went to this beach, especially the part we were at, was because no one ever went there. It's pretty isolated and hard to find unless you're really searching for it. You have to walk through a trail for about 10 minutes or so before it opens up into a small area free of foliage above the main part of the beach below. It was a great little spot to smoke in peace. We were having a good time, talking about stupid stuff and just hanging out. Then I heard this mumbling, followed by twigs snapping behind us. I put my index finger up, signaling for Cat, my girlfriend, to be quiet and I turned around and looked into the dark foliage for about a minute, but there was nothing. It was a little weird because it was around 1am, but I thought maybe it was just some other people exploring the trails. No big deal, right? Then I heard it again, that same mumbling followed by twigs snapping, closer this time. I quickly turned again, and there was a dude standing right at the edge of the tree line, which was about 10 feet away from us. He had long dark hair, no shirt or shoes on, just jeans and a weird tribal-looking necklace. It was so dark and his hair was so long and thick that it shrouded his face, so I couldn't really make out any distinct features. He was kind of whispering, but it was a really quiet night. There was no wind and no waves crashing below us. His voice made the hairs on my arms stand up. It was really monotone but soft, and he was speaking French. I don't speak fluent French, but I understand a good amount due to the fact that I spent 10 years of my life on the southeast border of England, right by the Channel Tunnel, so I learned some in school and also dealt with a lot of French tourists when I worked at a fish and chip shop. I'm fairly certain that he said something that roughly translated to, Are you afraid of death? Maybe I didn't hear him right. It's been almost four years since I moved back to New York by then. So I responded, asking in French, what? Again in French, he asks, are you afraid of death? Nope. I definitely heard him correctly. I stood up, facing him. My eyes adjusted to the darkness behind him a little, where I saw two more people on either side of him, a girl in some kind of white dress, cliche I know, and another shirtless guy slightly further back. They were just standing there. I didn't say anything. I just crouched down to Cat who had remained silent the whole time, keeping my eyes fixed on these weirdos, grabbing her hand, bringing her up to a standing position, and slowly walked us towards a much less steep part of the cliff, where we were able to carefully climb down towards the main area where I had parked my car, avoiding the trail, all the while constantly looking over my shoulder. I was visibly shaken by the whole ordeal. I'm not a small dude, I'm six foot four but my girlfriend was about 4 foot 11, little Latina chick, and I had left my knife at home so I wasn't taking any chances. 
Cat kept asking me what the guy was saying, but I didn't want to creep her out too much, so I just told her I didn't know and that they were probably just tourists asking for directions or something. She wasn't buying it, but she eventually dropped it once we got in the car. I later did some research on that area and found out that only five years prior, there were reports of illicit and strange activity occurring there on behalf of a self-proclaimed pagan cult, focusing on weird druidic practices originating all the way from France. I'm thankful I didn't take the time to truthfully answer that French-speaking man's question. I'm a female who is in a long-term, long-distance relationship with my boyfriend in England. You can call me Ginger, and my boyfriend is Brandon. These incidences still continue, and I will update them if anything major happens. Any help offered with the whole situation would also be greatly appreciated. Since around August or September of 2017, Brandon and I have been continuously harassed and stalked by these online cyberstalkers. We absolutely have no idea who they are or exactly why they are after us, and it's clear that there are multiple people out to get us. It started with my boyfriend getting a message on PlayStation Network from someone he used to know back in early 2017, a person that tried getting with him and an obvious catfish. They told him that they were going to make his life miserable. We tried brushing it off and thought that they were making empty threats because they couldn't have their way with him. However, this was not the case and for a long time now, this person has been doing everything they can to separate us and make us suffer. They would use these IP hacking programs to boot Brandon off of his internet and would occasionally do it to me. It would only happen to me when I was playing a specific game so I avoided it for a while and tried changing up my IP address. Brandon would also get the occasional message from this person saying things like, Your girlfriend doesn't love you and never will. She just cheated on you. Or, end your life now, you piece of trash. Just the typical bullcrap that would come from some low life hiding behind a screen. However, as time passed, the harassment only got worse. It even escalated to the point of this person having other people join in with them, saying Brandon's real name, street address, and family names to us. It then got up to me where they told Brandon my street address to him, which I had never told anyone about, not even him. We would also have people come to us on Skype, Kick, or PlayStation Network with screenshots of us supposedly cheating, which still happens occasionally. Only screenshots that were real was when my boyfriend played along to one of them to see if they would admit their plans to him, but they didn't. He told me they had sent a few Photoshop images of scantily clad girls saying it was them and to show the images to me so I would get jealous. He did indeed show them and pointed out how the waistline of one of them was uneven. The poor edits were quite noticeable. From there, it kept getting worse and worse. They would pretend to be us to an entire community throughout different accounts and try making us look like they were against each other. One of them even got through Brandon's PlayStation account and pretended to be him to me, saying that he had a new girlfriend and hates me or whatever. Recently, however, my boyfriend has completely lost his account with all the details changed and he's had to use alternate accounts. He also lost his main Skype account but has simply made a new one. I have no idea if they plan on attacking me but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I've been trying to ignore them recently even though I used to reply to them when they sent me messages but I'm doing my best to stay strong through all of this. 
As of right now, my boyfriend has been completely taken off of his net for now, again. It was off for a month beforehand and we almost separated due to that and some other mistakes that I will not go into detail with. However, I can say that we patched things up. Now this is a bit off topic, but it connects with the rest of the cyberstalkers. Brandon had an ex-friend he knew in person for years, a guy we will call Ivan. He suddenly decided to turn against us simply because me and Brandon were dating and used to argue a lot. This guy legitimately had no reason to hate us, but hates me most of all, even though I did nothing wrong to him. We were good friends to him and tried putting up with his toxicity for almost two years. I knew from the moment I met this guy that he was incredibly shady, but I tried ignoring that gut feeling for the sake of Brandon. I did let him know that he was completely toxic towards us, so he eventually broke off the friendship. However, while Brandon's net was off for a month, Ivan did let me and him talk when I asked about him, which I found to be quite strange. When Brandon came back and the three of us were playing a game together, I beat Ivan and he suddenly turned against me once more. I had enough of this waste of space and told him to never speak to me again, even blocking him but not before sending him messages of how he had burned his bridges with me. This guy was straight to Brandon and told him how much he hated me, even saying how horrible of a person he thinks I am. He was basically just calling me everything under the sun. Ivan even threatened to end my life if I ever went to go see my boyfriend in England. He just went on other accounts to try turning me against Brandon by coming up with lies about how he cheated on me, but I just ignored them. However, Ivan then said he was going to go to work with our stalkers and try to break us apart. This had me thinking that he may have been secretly letting out some information about Brandon to our cyberstalkers since he knew his address and everything, so I wouldn't put it past him if he was one of them. One thing to note is that Ivan held Brandon up against the wall and yelled at him just for talking to me. He's a seriously violent and mentally disturbed person. It honestly wouldn't surprise me if he got sent to prison for something terrible. It wasn't until my boyfriend's internet allowed for consistent communication between us did my boyfriend finally come clean about what has been happening. And this is where things have gotten incredibly strange and I don't know where to take it. He told me, about a few months prior to the various stalkers and threats, did he come into contact with Ivan through a mutual friend at his work. He says that Ivan led him to join an online community that operated in his local area. They were known for their open society promiscuity, and my boyfriend came clean that his loneliness led him to succumb to participate in this community. It wasn't until a month into the experience did he start to feel very sketched out by the strange practices the group would participate in, such as animal sacrifices and strange rituals, that he decided to abandon the group altogether. But persistence and use of blackmail has now placed him in an even more terrifying position. He cried throughout all of this sudden revelation to me, and I truly am in shock as I write this. He's lost my trust, but... My fear for his safety leads me to wonder, what should I do now? My name is Morgan and I am a 17 year old male from North Wales, UK. Me and my friends, five of us in total, were going to the castle close to our house to do a Ouija board. We all live on the same street, so we met at my house and then walked the three miles to the castle. It's now 11pm and it's completely dark. 
We have to walk in the woods and up some very steep inclines. It would take us an hour to reach the tower where we were planning to do the Ouija board. So onto the story, we are about 15 minutes from the tower. My best friend Cheryl tells us all to stop and listen. Just faintly, in the distance, we can hear talking and we can smell smoke. Cheryl tells us to walk on, but slowly and quietly. After about 15 minutes, we are about 50 feet from the tower, and now we can hear full-blown chanting. We can see a fire coming from the tower, and I can see a white figure facing towards this fire. I tell everyone to stand behind me and be absolutely quiet. We tiptoe towards the tower, and we are now at the entrance, and I peek my head around and see about 10 hooded figures around a fire and what looks like a dead dog being burned on the fire. After about one minute of staring in shock, one of the hooded figures spots me. He alerts the other figures, and before they started to come after me, I calmly walked away to my four absolutely terrified friends and quietly said, Run. So we did. We ran for our lives. I could hear the figures hot on our backsides. I started to cry. They were not saying anything. They were just bolting for us, fully covered in white hooded robes with two black holes where the eyes would be. After about what felt like five hours of chase, but was only about five minutes, we came to the main path leading out of the castle. I looked behind me one more time and saw the last few figures walking back towards the tower. We still had another 45 minutes walking down the path leading through the woods and out of the castle. Presuming we were safe, we sat down, had a cigarette and a beer each, and my fiancé David and Cheryl both went on to tell us that the hooded figures were probably a cult. They explained what a cult was and the hairs stood up on the back of my neck. I had never been so disgusted and terrified in my life, but we soon changed the subject to lighten the mood and eventually set back off. We finally arrived back at the entrance of the castle. We decided to get a taxi home and I phoned the police. I told the police about what we all saw and they said that they would look into it. The next day we received a follow-up phone call from the police saying that they went to the tower found a fire pit with the remains of a dog in the middle of it, but they never found any trace of the group. To this day, we haven't been back to that castle, and we don't plan on doing so. Years ago as a 17-year-old, I worked at a deli in a grocery store. This grocery store was in a small town, so it seems as if we had a very concentrated amount of crazy people. I was really naive and did not know how to say no to people, so I got into a lot of perplexing situations there. For our uniforms, we had to wear white button-up blouses, black pants, black aprons, and a huge name tag. The name tag not only had our first names, but our last names as well. My first name is slightly unique, but my last name is uncommon. Basically, I'm really easy to find. You search my name on Google or Facebook and I'm the only one, as of now, that pops up. I was always really uncomfortable with people seeing my full name in such a public job. An older man with big glasses, white beard, and red plaid coat came in one day asking for something small. As I was dishing it up, I did my usual chatter with the customer. He was asking me a lot of really uncomfortable personal questions, but I wasn't quite catching on that he was getting creepy. I was a senior and shared that with him. He asked me a few more things and he was on his merry way. I promptly forgot about him. He came back in one week later and asked me if he could take a picture of me. 
I didn't know what to think of it, but I smiled and said that I belonged behind a camera, not in front of one. He had a nervous laugh and disappeared. About 15 minutes later, a coworker ran up to me and asked me if I had just saw this old guy in a red plaid coat take a picture of me from behind this glass window we had by the entrance. It was really creepy, but I let it go. About two weeks after this, he came back in and waited until I was free to speak to him. He told me that his name was something like, and this is not his real name or legal name, it was one he made up, Emmanuel Lamb Branch. He asked me if I would like to go out to his home out in the country every Thursday night and be his hostess for his readings that he had. He said he wanted a beautiful woman to greet his guests and be admired by his side. I told him thank you, but I worked two jobs and I valued my few nights a week that I had off and would rather spend them with my family. In trying to convince me, he told me that he had a community of people that lived on his land and they were all very peaceful. I turned him down again and moved to a customer waiting for me. Later on that week, Emmanuel Lamb Branch came back in with some flyers. Apparently he had been going door to door and handed them to me, told me he was waiting for me, and left. I read the literature on my break. One was a typed out love poem. It was very sexual. The next was some political flyer. I could see he was running for president or something. The third absolutely creeped me out. I wish I still had it to type it out for you word for word. Basically, it was informing people of the New Kingdom and how Emmanuel Lamb Branch was the leader of the New Kingdom and that he had a bride waiting for him. His bride was me. He put my full stinking name in there and explained how he'd commissioned a local artist to paint a large portrait portraying me as his bride. Apparently, it was sitting above his fireplace. He said we were to have descendants who would rule the New Kingdom. That was it. I'd had enough of him. I went home crying and asked my mom what to do. She immediately called the police and they issued a restraining order on him. They took all of the papers from him and talked to him. He told them I wanted to be his bride and was waiting until I was 18. Disgusting. Emmanuel Lamb Branch still came into the store that I worked at for the next month. He would stand over by the magazines and would just watch me. For hours. It made me nervous. Finally, a coworker alerted the store manager who told him he could never come back inside. No, he just stood outside the door. Apparently that summer he was jailed for some violent behavior. And thankfully, I never saw that would-be cult leader again. Three years ago, I thought I joined an amazing church. I was never a Jesus freak and in fact used to make fun of them as a kid, referring to them as Bible thumpers. During college that changed. I felt the need to form a relationship with God after the deaths of close family members. It couldn't have been better timing because I ended up at a new school and a new job where I eventually met Joanna. Joanna was an instant friend, we clicked right away. We shared a passion for music, were studying the same major, and could talk for hours about anything. Joanna and I hung out for about six months before I started to notice anything out of the ordinary. Basically, I would never see her on the weekends because she told me she devoted them to her church and youth group. I didn't think that was strange, but I was curious and asked her what religion she was. She told me she was non-denominational, then quickly changed the subject. Joanna started showing up to work less and less, and she started missing classes. 
She was always tired when she did show up or looked completely drained or out of it. Rumors around school and work was that she was doing drugs. I knew that was false because both of us had a disdain for drugs and others who partied hard like that. Joanna had less and less time to spend with friends, so I rarely would see her. After about a month like this, she called me out of the blue to go out to Denny's. We met up and she pulled out her phone. She showed me a YouTube video of a recent volunteer activity she did with her church group. Joanna explained to me that she volunteered a lot with her church and it took up a lot of her time. The video quality was excellent for a church video and it played almost like a short film. The passion she had talking about all the good deeds they do and how much fun it was piqued my interest. I asked her the name of the church. Again, she did not disclose but said non-denominational Christian. She asked me to come with her right now because it was better that I see it myself. I found that strange because it was 10pm at night on a Wednesday. I went into a small office or warehouse looking building. I found it strange that the church wouldn't have any signs or pictures of Jesus in the space. It looked like a child's daycare or learning center. Immediately women rushed over and hugged me. It was unreal. I later learned I got love bombed. Before I knew it, I was sitting in a corner of a room with a woman slightly older and Joanna. She had a dry erase board and started teaching me about the Bible. The Bible study made sense, but soon after she asked me if I was ready to be baptized. It was now around 11.30pm and I felt some sort of obligation. I had no ride home, had no idea where I was, and these happy shiny people were cooking for me and teaching me the Bible. How could I say no? I was hesitant. But the intensity grew and I could feel the attitude start to change to desperation. They promised it would only take a few minutes and that God was watching and I may die if I deny being baptized after learning the truth. So like an idiot I agreed and was rushed into a bathroom to get changed into a white robe. When I let them know I had changed they ushered me into a bathtub where a small Asian man walked in. Apparently he was a pastor. He told me not to be nervous and that the water would be warm. I knelt in the shower with the lights dimmed while the rest of the women came in wearing veils over their head, singing in some strange monotone voices. I heard him baptize me in the name of some Asian god, and that's when I got freaked out. Once I left, I was baffled and nervous. It was such an intense feeling. I was still stuck there as Joanna had driven me away out into another county, so I had no idea how to leave. They made me some more food and later told me that the name I was baptized under would later be explained to me when I returned to study more. Everyone kept telling me how I was part of the family now. I ended up returning and being pretty heavily brainwashed by this group to the point where I felt like they were my family. I did things I'm not proud of. I helped recruit people and spent hours and days and weeks there. I later found out that Joanna was just a recruiter, which I would soon turn out to be. Someone who just forms fake friendships to bring more young women into this group. I escaped, mentally, and deprogrammed and defellowshipped. It was a truly haunting experience that no young female should go through. I still see Joanna from time to time with her vicious wolf pack preaching to women on campus and malls. I usually hide or run the other way. And I hope I never end up back in that cult again. I own this property in the countryside of Alabama. It's in the middle of nowhere with 60 plus acres. 
It has an abandoned house, barn, and greenhouse. The barn and house are close to each other and the greenhouse is far into the woods. Me and my friend were setting up film equipment in the house because we were going to film a video the next day. We had to sleep over for some reason, I forget. I didn't want to sleep in the truck, so we slept inside the house. My friend wakes me up and tells me he's getting really weird feelings about all of this, so we go sleep in my truck. I fall asleep and we get in the truck and my friend is still awake. He told me it was around 4 in the morning and he saw 7 to 8 people in hoods and robes. He said they looked around the house for a bit, probably to see if anybody was there because they saw our equipment in my truck. One of the guys stared directly at my friend in the car but the windows are tinted so the guy had a hard time seeing my friend. The guy stops investigating my truck and goes back with the group. My friend tried to wake me up but I guess I wouldn't. Morning came and my friend was still very sleepy from not catching any sleep. We go into the house to check on everything. The lights are smashed, papers are burned, umbrellas are broken. We found candles around the house, a cat nailed to a wall with a pentagram around it. I was very shocked by everything and wish I was awake. My friend sounds like he was terrified. Previous days we had found decayed animals, two dogs, some horses, some cattle, birds, a bat, and some kind of hand buried. Since this place was once farmland, I just assumed the previous owner just left the animals to die or something, but I didn't know how to explain the bat, birds, and hand. This stuff was found near the barn and in the barn. So one day we come back to see if there's any more weird stuff going on. We find three pigs on crosses near the house. The pigs were decapitated and the heads were on the ground in front of them. They were wearing makeup and they had wigs sewn into their heads. My friend tells me he thinks the people he saw the last time were there did it, and was telling me that he thought that they might be part of some satanic cult or some other group. Around the crosses and pigs, some of the grounds were burned, a few large circles. Me and my friend spent the rest of the day taking down the pigs and burying them in the woods. We go here again to ride some dirt bikes and ATVs, and nothing weird was there when we came. We put the vehicles in the barn because we would come back later in the week. My friend's putting up his ATV and tells me he saw a person in the barn just relaxing on some hay, but it was in the dark in one of the horses or cattle stalls. My friend stood there for a while to see if it was a person, and the man moved his hand in a goodbye kind of way. My friend runs out of the barn and tells me what happens. I go in there because I thought my friend was messing with me. But no one is in there, and then when I'm leaving the barn, I see the guy trying to sleep on the second story, and I ask if he's alright and he tells me he is, and tells me to go away and let him sleep, even though it's my property. I don't want to start any crap with him, so I let him be. My friend says he thinks he is part of the group that's been doing stuff on my property. We go there again about two weeks later, and we see from my truck the guy walking out of the barn and talking with two guys. One of them point to my truck and they all run into the woods. I get my knife and gun, keep it under my seat, and it finally came in use, and I go with my friend to go find the guys to tell them they can't come here anymore and that it's my private property. I can't find them, but we found that most of them stay inside the greenhouse. We found clothes, books, and dead birds and squirrels, and I'm assuming that's what they ate. There was a pond nearby, so that's probably where they bathed then or didn't bathe at all. We go to the barn to investigate, and we found books on the second story, an altar, and some tall candles. All of this was out of sight from the ground. 
We also found stuff like ropes, knives, nails, a hammer, and a mallet. We conclude that all of those guys there are in the group and they did all of that weird stuff. We have not been back at that property for months, so we don't know if they're still there or had moved on. The police have searched there before for two guys that had kidnapped a nine-year-old too, so those guys might be related to that. Unfortunately, the police found no one there. About two years ago, my friends and I found out about an abandoned, insane asylum located in Downey, California. Being the curious 17-year-olds that we were, we decided to be a good idea to go explore this abandoned facility just to see what we could find inside. So on a Saturday night, we gathered a few more of our friends and made the drive out to Downey so we could explore this building for ourselves. After about 30 minutes of driving, we arrive in Downey and make our way through the city to where the asylum is located. The closer we get, the shadier and shadier the neighborhoods we're passing through become, and after about 15 minutes of driving, we arrive at our destination. We park the car, climb through a hole in the fence, and make our way into the building to see what we could find. To be honest, it started out not being too bad. Considering we had about 10 people, we were thinking... What's the worst thing that could happen to a group of ten people? So we meandered through the building, looking at all the broken furniture scattered throughout the rooms, the patient files thrown upon the floor, and we're pretty much just having a good time looking at what once was this weird mental institution. But this is where things get weird. As we're walking, we of course have a flashlight pointed down the hallway because the power that once was in this building was and is clearly out. But as we're walking with our flashlight pointed ahead of us and we come to a corner, we see the adjacent wall of the corner light up from what we assumed was another flashlight, and sure enough we turn the corner and there's another group of four kids. Shady, weird kids. We confront each other and they ask us if we had been to the slide. We politely answer no because we have no idea what they're talking about and they tell us that we should follow them. Of course, we decline because we're getting weird vibes from these people, and as they're talking amongst themselves, one of the kid comes up to me with, I kid you not, a solid six-inch long bowie knife-looking thing. Isn't this cool? Look what I found. As he moves the knife closer to my face, I politely answer what a cool find that is, and we start to back away, telling them that we're going to go explore the roof of the building. Surprisingly, they say alright and they turn the corner and continue on their way. Alright, now that that was out of the way, I'm seriously beginning to feel weird about being in this place and about how we're definitely not supposed to be here. So at that point, I say screw it. We need to go to the roof, go down the fire escape, and get out of here. So we make our way to the roof and we're sitting there plotting our escape. Like I said, people are not supposed to be in the asylum, so... They have a police car stationed at the main gate to make sure no one comes in. So as we're up there, we try to figure out the best way to get out of here without getting noticed by the police. That's when my friend sees a fire escape ladder coming down off this higher portion of the roof. We decide that that is probably our best bet, so we grab a small ladder that will be able to boost us up onto this higher portion of the roof. My friend Jonah goes up and immediately turns around so he could help other people out by pulling them up. As I'm getting myself up there, my heart completely sinks. Jonah, did you not see this when you got up here? 
I whisper. What are you talking about, man? He responds. I'm looking forward, and he slowly turns to see what was pretty much our worst nightmare. There's about 15 hooded people sitting in a circle up there surrounding a burning cat or some other dead animal. These guys are talking in tongues and just making noises which seem satanic. As we're both getting down, we get noticed, and they start talking amongst themselves in this weird language, and as soon as we get down, these guys stand up and start sprinting towards us. I tell everyone to ditch the idea of the fire escape and to not worry about the cops. We need to get out of here now. So we start sprinting through this building with this cult in close pursuit behind us. We miraculously make it out of the building and are starting to run across the field to the main gate, and as we're doing so, the cop notices the commotion, turns on his sirens, and comes driving in. Thank God he manages to cut the cult off from us, and he starts to chase them as we get away safely. Honestly, I can safely say it was the scariest experience of my life. What would we have done if they had taken one of our friends? Would we have to go back in and confront them? I don't know, and I'm glad that it didn't happen. My friend Connor has a girlfriend who lives a few hours away, and her mum reads all her texts, so they generally stick to Skype. Well, after a while, his girlfriend Ellie wants to introduce him to her Skype friends. This is a group of people who met in various places across the internet, who have those awful chats you can't keep up with. Then she introduces him to Jack. Jack is the epicenter of the group. Connor mentions him to me in passing a few times over about a month, and then he finally messages me one night and says, I need to talk to you. So we talk, and he tells me what Jack's been saying. Jack is what I like to refer to as liar, crazy, legit, and I estimate the odds of each of those are 50, 49, 1. See, Jack claimed to be a supernatural being, which I'd normally laugh off, except he's got a group of hapless people convinced of this, and Connor describes the group dynamics and its red flags all around for controlling behavior. And, well, it's sort of my speciality, dealing with people like Jack, but Connor doesn't want to stir up trouble because he's non-confrontational. I don't have similar inhibitions. So, one night, C invites me into the group chat, which is ominously dubbed The Truth. Cults have a collective belief in varying levels in something. In this case, The Truth is about Jack. The first thing anyone says to me is, did you get Jack's permission? Every alarm bell in my system is going off. Connor and I both play dumb. Slowly, hesitantly, a few other members of the group, all strangers to me, start saying hello. Not welcoming me, just asking how I know Connor, not trying to explain that the chat is kind of private, just saying tentative hellos. The girl who first demanded to know if Jack gave me permission to join announces she asked Jack if I'm allowed to stay. Connor, meanwhile, is messaging me about group dynamics. The only non-believer Connor knows of is King, who's vocal about his problem with Jack. I talk to King, who tells me that the other person doesn't believe is the girl who challenged me about entering the group. Red flag number one, someone who doesn't believe Jack is still the first to challenge outsiders. Cults don't appreciate outsiders. That's about when Jack arrives. He's likable, don't get me wrong. He is good at what he does. I think for about 30 minutes that he's too good for me to be any use. 
but I'm a writer, so I can commit to a character pretty well, and he buys into my Southern Bell act. Once he invites me to a private chat, I'm immediately told that I can ask him anything without fear of repercussions. Dude lives 600 miles from me. What kind of repercussions could there be? So I talk to King and the girl who challenged me and it turns out he's doing something else that's seen in cults. He's using threats and fear to get people to obey him. Something about being sold into magical slavery if he doesn't protect them. I'm going to pause here to say that people who don't believe Jack are the most emotionally stable ones. There are abuse victims and depressed teenagers in this little group. They're smart, but they have two options. Believe Jack or lose friends. Anyway, back to the circle of creepy. Jack's Skype mood is going to kill my brother. I inquire. He tells me that his brother stabbed him with a sword and sides with her father who Jack hates. Half of this guy's lore comes from the Dresden films. For a creepy would-be cult leader, he really sucks at lying. So I mark him down for dysfunctional in real life family and possible violent tendencies. I then lure Jack into a trap. I won't bore you with details, but... I get irrevocable screenshotted proof that he's a lying liar who lies, not delusional and not legit. I let Jack know the jig is up. As retaliation, he decides he should ban me and Connor from the group, but before he can, I go off on a nice little tangent in the group chat about a Criminal Minds episode where a cult leader kicks out anyone who challenges him, lest the others be swayed. Jack is angry at me, really angry, like hope this idiot can't trace my IP address or I'm dead angry. But it doesn't end there. Oh no. Jack returns to the group chat with a sob story and I let him stew because I've been slowly working my way through the group, ripping off the Jack is a liar who lies and manipulates and really shouldn't be talking to this guy, no really, band-aid. I go talk to King. He tells me that his fellow non-believer challenger has a picture of Jack's ID. Because I believe in having leverage, I do some totally legal digging into this guy who has an unfortunately unique surname. Dear Jack's mom, you should change your Facebook security settings. Some fun facts about Jack. His little brother is a jock, better looking, mesomorph body, athletic, popular. Jack is none of these. His mom stops talking about her eldest son quite suddenly. No more pictures of Jack, not a single mention of Jack since he was 18. So I made note of it and moved on with my background check. But then I noticed something. An arrest. Not unusual except before the arrest date. He and his brother are equally pictured on their mom's Facebook and then nothing. I can't figure it out until I'm talking to Jack. Distracting him and letting him talk himself in circles. I see his mood again. Gonna kill my brother. Dear God, I think. Remembering that every lie holds a kernel of truth. He actually has a brother he wants to kill. I ask him why he was arrested, even though I feel it in my gut that I'm right. Assault, he says. On whom? On my brother. I need confirmation on a few other things before I present the facts to the group, still called the truth, even as more and more members sit behind their computers marveling at the irony. So I keep talking to him to make sure I had the right jack, that I'm not dealing with a catfish creep. We video chatted. It is him. Mugshot and ID confirm. He keeps asking me questions. Where do I live? North of you. What do I do for a living? Consult. How old am I? 17. What's your full name? I wasn't giving that one out. I, like Jack, have one of those last names that are incredibly rare. 
He could find it if he googled me. At any point, Jack could do five minutes of googling and find my full name, first, middle, and last. Anyway, I told the group about Jack lying that day and shut down his manipulative attempts to garner sympathy. Now he says he's dying and his father's a mobster and his brother is his adoptive brother. Except, there's no one around for this equally ridiculous story. He's trying to convince me. Literally, just me. I live in a rural part of Tucky. There's not much to do here for a couple of bored teenagers. You always hear about local urban legends. Every town has one or two. My town is no different. Kentucky has a cult presence. There is a distillery in a remote part of the area. It sits by Kentucky River on a stretch of road out in the middle of nowhere. Kids in the area love to throw parties there. One of my friends, Jay, was one of these kids. Jay moved to our school in the middle of the year. He knew everyone, and everyone knew him. During a dull math lecture, Jay and I started talking about local myths surrounding the area. There are quite a few. Jay starts telling me about a distillery he used to throw parties at. He says that he's heard rumors that a cult meets there and continues to tell me weird experiences he's had there. Everything from dolls being nailed to the walls inside the distillery to a homeless guy shooting at him down there. I decided I wanted to check it out. Jay... A few friends and I decide to go to the distillery the following weekend to explore the area around it. Our plan was for me to drive my car and Jay to drive his car. We had a total of eight people going with us and for me to follow Jay there. Friday comes and the whole day at school we are getting psyched up for our trip. At about ten that night we all meet and saddle up. I follow Jay in his car with my four passengers and Jay drives his car with two passengers. We drove for what seemed like forever, about 45 minutes. I didn't even know if we were in the same town. Jay turned his car onto a two-lane road. This road seemed pretty normal, no sign of anything out of the ordinary. I keep following Jay's car down this road for about another five minutes. That's when things start getting weird. The road got smaller and we passed a street sign that just had the word hell spray painted on it. We passed a couple of houses that had weird red lights on the inside and a few houses that looked like they were falling apart. A little further we passed the distillery and took a left up another holler. This road was even crazier. It was almost straight up a mountain with no guardrail on the side. If we were to swerve off this road we were dead. We get to the top of the hill and keep following this road until we come upon a gravel driveway. Jay stopped his car. This is it. He said as he got out of his car and walked over to mine. I noticed some strange things right off the bat. The driveway led up to a huge house surrounded by trees. In the trees I noticed ropes hanging from them. They looked like nooses. There were signs posted everywhere about shooting anyone who came onto the property. I also noticed a weird rock formation in the clearing of trees off to the side of the road. Almost like a stone hedge type deal. After talking to Jay for a little while about the route we were taking to go back home, we noticed lights coming down the drive. A few of them. Drive, drive, Jay shouted as he took off back to his car. I immediately floored it. I left Jay and his passenger in the dust. I almost hit three deer that jumped out in front of my car. My buddy in the back seat started asking us if we had seen those things behind us. I asked him what he was talking about and he said that it was what looked like dogs in the road behind us. 
He said that they looked like dogs, but they were way too big to be dogs. We got back to town and stopped at a Waffle House to rehash what had just happened. Jay said that he had seen a few dirt bikes and ATVs coming down the drive and didn't want to be around when they got there. Could this have been the cult everyone was talking about? I may never know. Hey friends, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and click that notification bell to be alerted of all future narrations. If you got a story, be sure to submit them to my subreddit, r Let's Read Official, and give and receive feedback from the community, and maybe even hear your story featured on the next video. And join my Discord to interact with me and other listeners directly. And if you want to support me even more, grab early access to all future narrations for just $1 a month on Patreon, and maybe even pick up some Let's Read merch on Spreadshirt. And check out the Let's Read podcast where you can hear all these stories in long compilation form and save huge on data, located on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Links in the bio. Thanks so much, friends. And remember, are you a parking ticket? Because you've got fine written all over you. <laughs>